What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Simon Cornell. He's an Australian magician who has come to the US to grace us with his many feats of magic and impossible objects. Simon's a super cool guy, we've become friends over the last couple of months, and he's got a lot of really interesting takes on performance and on how to be a professional magician. Simon's a super interesting guy, and he's been on Fool Us. He won FISM's most original close-up act in 2012. He's performed in burlesque. He does close-up. He does stage magic. So there's a lot of really interesting things that you can take away from this, this discussion that we had. Simon's great. This interview was fun. It was funny. I think you guys are going to get to see a side of me that you may not have seen on the podcast before. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't know what exactly was going on that day but i think i was feeling a little salty just a just a little little prickly simon and i are friends and i felt very comfortable uh getting a bit opinionated so i don't know you may agree with me you may disagree with me but (laughs) it certainly makes for an interesting listen if you haven't already sign up for the newsletter follow us on all the social media accounts Instagram.com slash Treasury of Wonder and slash Magical Thinking Podcast. That's the podcast Instagram. Facebook.com slash Sense of Mystery and Facebook.com slash Magical Thinking Podcast. Give us likes and follows and let us know what you think. If you're in the Southern California area and you need to do some holiday shopping, come visit us at the Unique LA Maker Fair in downtown Los Angeles this weekend. It's the first weekend in December. And if you can make it out, you can get all of your holiday shopping done. Not just buying cards from Art of Play and hanging out with us cool magician folk, but there's a lot of great vendors from all across the country displaying their wares. There's jewelry, there's t-shirts, there's weird, interesting knickknacks that you can put in a strange part of your house. Basically, Anything that you can imagine that you can wear or that you can fit inside your home, you can find an interesting version of it at Unique LA. So come out and see us. It's $15 at the door, I think, for a wristband, but you can come in all day Saturday and all day Sunday in and out with that wristband. So it's a one-time payment kind of thing. Anyway, enjoy Simon's episode. Let me know what you think by emailing me at podcast at artofmagic.com. And uh, yeah, enjoy. So, Simon, tell me about this act you do. Are we recording now? Oh, we've been recording. Oh, shit. Uh, so, <laughs> I, God, about eight, seven, eight years ago, I yeah. was in L.A. on one of my like early L.A. pilgrimages yeah. from Australia. Uh. And I was at the Magic Castle, and I met... You know, you meet people at the castle. It's a great social hub. Yes, you do. Uh, what do you guys do? Oh, we're burlesque performers. And at the time, <laughs> I had, I didn't really know much about that. I'd never seen burlesque. In my head, I thought that meant vaguely classy striptease. Yeah. Which is not really my thing. I just don't really, you know, it's not sure. what I'm into. What, is that not what burlesque is? No. Well, it can be. So, cl- what well, it turns out, there's this whole thing, classical burlesque, quote-unquote, uh-huh. is vaguely classy striptease. Okay. Sort of, it's elegant, and, you know. The, the, what so you sort of imagine, like sort of nineteen forties, fifties, whatever. My decades are terrible, but the, 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 you know, slow revealing and then nipples, yeah. Okay. And then, but then they were like, "Yeah, come to our." I'm like, "No, I've never really seen Bella. Like, come to our show." So I went to Monday Night Teas. 
right? Lily's show that is very well known here now. I don't know anything about that. What is uh, that? Monday Night Tees, burlesque show in LA. Uh, I believe LA's longest running weekly burlesque show happens okay. down uh, in Hollywood on Santa Monica and Vine, at a place called Three Clubs. It's very good. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Uh, and it's what I loved about it. I went there just because I'm in LA. I'm experiencing new things. Why the heck not go to a burlesque show? I'll try yes. something I wouldn't normally do. I agree. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised to discover that it was it was funny and intelligent and subversive and incisive and just really entertaining. A lot of the acts were kind of they were mostly comedic. They were mostly parodies of something like yeah. There were oh, there were just so many things that it was funny and surprising, and then also nipples. You know, sort of okay. the one common thread in burlesque is some element of titillation, but then it can be serious or funny or political. Like one was a political commentary piece. Yeah, it was called basically stripteasing as Sarah Palin with like political references. You know, at I'm the into time. it. It was good. great. I was yeah. like, oh my god, this is fantastic. America's the greatest. Yeah, <laughs> I love this. And so I went back a few times, and yeah, I you noticed, said this was like eight years ago. Yeah, seven or eight years ago, I okay. think, like way back now. And, and I've noticed this thing, whenever I go and see live performance art of any genre, you know, mm. like theater, comedy, music, whatever, I get ideas. Yeah. And I think it's my brain kind of going, okay, what would I do on this stage? Or how would I follow this act? Or, you know, the brain just generates ideas. What yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was watching it and I just had this idea for a routine. And it was mainly, oh man, wouldn't it be funny if someone did dot, dot, dot this? And I realized no one else was going to do it. Yeah. And so I pitched the idea to Lily, who runs it. Which is what? Uh, What's the, the idea? Act? All right, well, we'll get to that. Okay, it's, all right. It's, it's so, okay. Yeah. Okay, sure. It's, um, it's online, but there's like a secret link because it's very different to my normal work. You know, most of my stuff is corporate and private events, and this is not that. So it's, I don't this have is, it publicly online. This is online. very private events. Extremely private events. You know, Extremely or ones where like you know male nudity private is part acceptable, events. nay encouraged. I've done it at Brooklyn once, and I've done it at a few other places. And uh, and I describe my idea to her. I'm like, hey, yeah. Lily, what if da da da? And she goes, heck, I'd book that. Yeah. And so I got to work, and it was a year later. So the act is, this is how it goes. Uh, I come out introduced in character. So it's not me. It's uh, Christopher Hogsworth. Just Christopher Hogsworth, which is obviously a parody of Guy Hollingworth. Like yeah. that was part of the character identity I was thinking. Yeah. And, and the idea is this happens in context at a burlesque show. So it's been, you know, predominantly female performers, you know, doing like funny or serious titillating performing. Mm -hmm. And so it's common at a burlesque show to get at least one variety act, just to mix it up a bit. Sure. You know, there's a juggler or a magician or a comedian or something. So the audience is very much, it's playing with their expectations. They're expecting right now, we know you want to see another, you know, lovely lady, but instead yeah. we have a magician. Uh, all the way from London, not where I'm actually from, right? Yeah. It's in character. Uh, Chris, the magician with nothing up his sleeve, Christopher Hogsworth. So I come out, and it's very much this kind of awkward, enthusiastic body language, and, oh, good evening, everybody. Uh, hello, hello. Very, very excited to be here. So this kind of awkward, goofy magician character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like, I know, I know you'd like to see another lovely lady, but instead I would like to share with you the fine art of card magic. You know, mm -hmm. looking, Overly enthusiastic about the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, do some flourishes, do like a quad snap change, and, you know, make some jokes. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Now for the main effect, uh, someone chooses a card. And this was very much inspired by partly watching Burlesque, partly being a massive fan of Arrested Development. And this was like the bit where Joe rips open his shirt to show the card and gets it wrong. That yeah. was kind of the starting point. Yeah. So someone chooses a card, bring out the magic wand, try and read their mind, get it wrong. 
what do you want from me? The shirt for my back? Rip open the shirt, and there's like a giant five of clubs, you know. So yeah. the card they've chosen is the, is the Four of Spades, as it happens, coincidentally. As it, it always seems to be the Four of Spades. It's huh. I mean, right. Random choice, but cards are different. Yeah. Five of clubs. No, not, not that. Oh, and then play at the awkwardness. Like really committing to as though that was genuinely, like Job, right? Yeah. That was genuinely the real you were going for. It's genuinely gone wrong, and people are usually believing that at that point. So they give you a better picture. So we're there. <laughs> there you go. Is that where the four spades is printed? <laughs> no, really. So anyway, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so rip up, rip up in the shirt. Five of clubs. Wrong card. And playing that as you know, it's again one of the problems in Magic. You very rarely get a well acted, deliberate error. Yeah. It's often very obvious it's not. Yes. So at that point, it's very much committing to uh, you know not the five, not the five of clubs. Oh. And then again, the body language is now the body language now shrinks. You know, it's very it's very awkward and sort of trying to kind of uncomfortably cover yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, oh, it's, gosh, it's, that's awkward. Wait a minute. Yeah. Unless, and then I tear off stripper pants, mm -hmm. and I'm wearing boxer shorts with a seven of diamonds printed on the boxer shorts. <laughs> the seven of diamonds. Yeah. Not the seven of diamonds. It's, you know, it's getting frustrated now. Like, yeah. gosh, I come to. I come, what's the line? I, I come all the way here from London, and this is how we end up in a terrible state of disarray. Oh, gosh darn it to heck. I mean, I, su I suppose I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I give, what, what was the card? It's very odd. Four of spades. Oh. Well, I certainly didn't see that coming. Or did I? And then it's turn around, tear off the boxer shorts, which are also like, you know, rip away ones. Yeah. And on the butt cheeks is a four of spades. Great. And at that point, so you're facing away from the audience, so they've got rear nudity rather than frontal nudity. Yeah. And then reach over and grab, that's right, when walking out and carrying a newspaper, so that, you know, British awkward newspaper carrying yeah. character establishment thing, grab the newspaper, cover the, the frontal junk region, then turn around, take a bow. So very kind of full Monty style, you know, nice. tactically covering the genitalia. Take a bow and then sort of leave half awkwardly from the stage. Mm -hmm. And that's the act. And it was great. It killed I can, I very rarely get to perform it. There's very few venues where that is, you know, what they're looking for. Yeah. And again, it's not something I have online, you know, overtly because it's so different from my normal work, but sure. it's, it's a joy to perform. And it was the first time I'd ever, you know, been naked on stage, but it was, I was comfortable with it because I knew the, the nudity made sense. The nudity mm -hmm. made it funnier. So it wasn't like it was just going to be gratuitous, awkward, weird nudity for no yeah. reason. It was, oh yeah, that's the right artistic yeah. choice for that bit yeah and it makes sense because that's the context of the burlesque yeah exactly you're not gonna go up and show. not get naked yeah and i love it because it really plays with people and i did it a couple of years later a friend was running an all-male burlesque show and asked me to do the act and it didn't play well there because the expectations were wrong at a male burlesque show everyone's expecting the dudes to get naked mm -hmm. in a normal you know conventional burlesque show which is going to be mostly female they're expecting a variety act that won't involve nudity. Yeah. So you come out and they're going, this is some just awkward, crappy magician. Yeah. And then when they realize where it's going, it subverts that and it's a much better revelation. Yeah. So I sort of, it's one of the things I didn't even realize why the bit was working at first mm -hmm. and it plays in that context. Yeah. I love it when you don't know why something works. Yeah. Right. And then and then you realize why it works. Yeah, you after you, and yeah. then you, you've learned something deeper about you know. Yeah, you have a revelation about your revelation. I had that thing when I was working on a, a great idea, 
Yeah. Fantastic idea. I love this idea of <laughs> huge, basically huge idea. Huge idea. Basically, a, uh, an invisible deck type variant, just a way to have someone name, have an audience name a card. Because that's a great thing now that I'm mostly focusing on stand up and stage material to be able to involve many people. You know, red or black, hearts or diamonds, blah blah blah. Yeah. And then you've predicted the card. And my idea was because having a card reversed in a deck. All right, that's cool, but that's often. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel as strong. That's something that could theoretically be done through sleight of hand. You know, there's nothing permanent about it. And I came up with a method that was just a more convenient method to have, uh, more like a brainwave effect, where it's the one odd backed card in the deck. Mm -hmm. And my theory of that, you could also have whatever you wanted written on it. So it was a company event or a themed event you could customize. You know, look, all these cards are normal, but the one you named, turn it over, bam, revelation, yeah. whatever's printed on the back. And and for some, it didn't get as strong as a reaction as an invisible deck. And it took me ages to figure out why. It was confusing the heck out of me because it was magically strong. It was fooling people. They didn't know how it was done. You know, yeah. I was checking. And I finally realized because it's not magically weaker, but it's dramatically weaker in that when you have an invisible deck, they've named a card. You spread through the deck. All of them are facing away, but then one is face down. Yeah. That's something unusual. Mm -hmm. and then you turn it over to show the familiar the card matches the thing so yeah. it begins with an odd configuration and then bam familiar right you see the five of hearts that you named yeah whereas with mine you spread through you pull out the five of hearts familiar and you turn it over to show the odd back and the final climax moment is is an odd weird thing it's a confusion it's exactly. not a resolution yeah, it's exactly a, yeah. invisible deck is confusion and resolution yeah. this was resolution and confusion and that was, I finally took me ages to realize that, mm -hmm. but that's why it was weaker. And so I dropped it, you know, it just didn't work out. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, that, that part of discovery, that act of discovery is super yeah. important for people building an act. How do you know when something is good? Yeah. Normally when, I mean, everything for me is for, you know, a lay audience, for a normal audience, and it's when they're raving about it, basically. I mean, even that's subjective, right? Yeah. It depends on what you're trying to achieve with your material and what sure. you care about, but... Yeah, for me, it's if if people are raving about it, mentioning it, and telling other people about it. And that's like a theory from a friend who was uh, in marketing, just corporate marketing. Yeah. Talked about the biggest, their biggest kind of metric of is something working is to what degree people are telling their friends about it. Yeah. That was because a lot of different things are boiled up into that. That's how likely they are to recommend it, how likely word of mouth is to spread, how likely and hence more people are to buy it or invest in it or whatever. Yeah. And so for me, it's yeah, when people mention, oh, that thing was great. I love that thing. He does this thing you should see. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But when you're developing it and you haven't even had... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, when you're I developing know, something right. and you haven't had the chance to do it, like how yeah. do you know that it's ready to go out and perform? Uh, you just don't. Yeah. And, that's, and, and that's actually one of those sort of philosophical things that I find interesting about magic is different people have their thresholds of when is something ready to put in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to lean much earlier than most people. Yeah. Because I just, if it's something that is genuinely new, you know, very few things are completely new, but when sure. it's new enough that you don't know, I try and, as soon as it is functionally performable, I try and put it in front of an audience. And I mean, yeah. usually I'll perform it for, you know, a friend of a friend, you know, you quickly burn out your friends and family. They've seen yeah. all your stuff too much to be genuine normal audiences yeah you know and so i try and find some hey i'm working on something can i show you 
show it, see how they react. And mm -hmm. I can kind of gauge its potential a bit, but yeah. I get it out there early because you, you know, ma magic literally, you know, the medium in which a magician works is the mind of an observer. And without an observer's mind, you cannot practice your magic. Like, yeah. Literally, the, no magic happens without a mind in which for it to happen. Yes. So I get out there early and I have a rule that there's a lot of, if you imagine like, if you can imagine you can boil down quality of performance to a single continuum, which mm -hmm. is, you can't, but say you could, you know, sure. oversimplify it. And you have the different tiers. Like at the bottom is, it's so bad that everyone is going to throw up. It's so bad, everyone loves you. it. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, that's a, that's a whole different scale. Imagine it can just be a linear thing. Okay. Right? Not so bad it's good, but just bad. Okay. Just, okay. This is a terrible act. I sure. hate this. Okay. I'm going to tweet about how bad this is. Like, so bad it's noteworthy. You know, yeah. Bottom tier. And then just so bad most people do that. Then just so bad everyone just leaves. And then so bad only some people leave. And then just merely bad, then mediocre, then decent, then good, then great, then amazing, then incredible, then life-changingly good. You know, the yeah. whole hierarchy. Sure. So there are a lot of thresholds. And there are two thresholds I find myself thinking about the most, like in terms of practical terms. One is, you know, so good people just rave about it as one of the best things they've ever seen. Yeah. And that's where, I'm, where I aim. Yeah. And very rarely, if ever hit. Sure. It's like the Bruce Lee theory, like aim the punch two inches beyond the intended point of impact. Because mm -hmm. then you hit the actual point of impact harder if you aim higher. Yeah. So aiming it, you know, transcendently, life-changingly brilliant. Yeah. Not really hitting that yet. Maybe before I die, hopefully. Yeah. But then the second line is the line above which no one in the audience felt like they wasted their time or their money. Yes. And to me, that's, that's sort of above that line, your karma is clean. Your conscience yeah. is clear. Mm -hmm. And so I'll put a routine in the show. If I'm comfortable, it'll be above that line. Yeah. Where, and it might, like, it might mess up. The trick might go wrong. It might not be great. But as long as it's not... A waste people, of their time. Yeah. Or yeah. Their, their time and their money. Then I'm okay with testing it. Yeah. You know? So that's when I'll put something in the show and try it out. And yeah, many things have been like, eh. Yeah, but the rest of the show is still good. You know, it's the, the sandwiching theory. You sure. a new thing between the two really solid things. Yeah. So that if it sucks, which it does sometimes, you know, you go, ah, oh, okay, that, it's not a good idea after all. Yeah. And it hurts because you get so excited about the new thing. It's like, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah. And then it sucks. And, like, oh. um, and you cry your art tears. Oh, a brekkie. Cry your art tears. Cry your art tears. Kill your babies and move on. Not literally. Don't kill babies. Okay. I don't know why, but my microphone has been having some trouble. <coughs> it should be picking up pretty well, but it's not, which bothers me. I mean, it does have a bag over its head. Is this Audacity? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it doesn't matter that the bag is over its head. Yeah, that's just well, it's that stopping like wind. Yeah. Yeah. Pops and things. Yeah. Plosives. Test. Okay. Let's just yeah, speak up like, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Projection voice. Projection. I can always amplify it a little. Oh, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, let me give you some tips on how to do podcasting. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the Mac King episode and there was another episode that was just so low. I yeah, really I had to... Um, I come from a world where I didn't have any other magicians around me. And 
So when I found somebody, I wanted to share everything I knew with them. And I'm, I'm in LA more frequently and I, you know, have art of magic and it's about teaching people how to do magic. And I do this podcast, which is free, which talks about magic and we have the blog and free magical content on the site. And you come to L.A. and everybody just shuts their fucking mouth. <laughs> and it's so infuriating because I don't care what anyone else is doing. And, I, of course, I mean, I, I'm sure there's reasons and justifications for that. Mm. But it's just so foreign to me personally to be at dinner with two friends yeah. and they're talking in code about something I really don't give a shit about but would like to be able to have him put in the conversation. How do you feel about that? That's actually really interesting because I had... LA is, LA is such a fascinating city because it's such a city of contrast. There's so many different things going on here. You know, you get the... It has a reputation for kind of shallow pretentiousness, but then there is also wonderful deep sincerity to be found here all over the place. Yeah. You mentioned at lunch that you love the city because it's self-aware. Yeah. It's very self-aware. It kind of, it has, it's all the glory and all the horror and it knows it's both yeah. and everything in between. And it's funny actually, like now that you mentioned that, I know what you mean. Whereas my experience of it was coming here and I found it was actually the opposite. I found there were so many people I could, at last I could talk to because you know, Melbourne, Melbourne's magic scene is actually really thriving now. It's mm -hmm. really picked up a lot in the last decade. But when I got into magic over there, it was just this desert. There were like a few magicians, but nothing much was happening. And I had really no connection to most of them. And yeah, there were a couple of magic clubs, but they were just kind of at that time, there was just nothing really happening at them. And it was just very, there was nothing really inspiring there. Then I came to LA in 2007 was the first time and just, oh my God, it was amazing. There were just so many people doing so much stuff. And I think people here, I mean, in my experience and everyone's experience is so subjective, Sure, you know, because there's people who, it always annoys me when people go, everyone I know feels this. I'm like, yeah, you know, 200 people. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Two, that's a fraction. Your sampling is, is nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. So it's who knows. So I mean, my yeah, experience yeah. has been people are really happy to talk about like technique and craft and, but they get cagey about business opportunities. Yeah. So it's when there's sort of a, a business opening, there were, cause there is most people, most people are great, but there's an annoying minority who steal people's crap. Yeah. That, and that's why everyone's cagey. Cause yeah, yeah. everyone, everyone who's a creator, whether a creative material or a creator of business opportunities here has experienced people, you know, Taking advantage, taking, taking advantage of their stuff. Yeah. And that's why, and it's really frustrating because, again, it's a, a crappy minority who ruins it for everybody else. But, you know, there's a lot of people who now, again, anyone creating, there's things like, there's material you wouldn't perform at the castle. Because, you know, there's, it's not guaranteed, but there's good odds that someone, it's going to bleed out somewhere and someone's going to start doing it. And then yeah. you lose the power of the exclusivity of something you came up with and you poured your heart and soul into and same with, the, yeah, the thing the other night, that was just um, a business thing. Yeah. That's also because uh, Jordan is super cagey about that more than me. I know, but it's so yeah, it's so interesting to me because, like, I've got my business. I yeah, exactly. Perform, you don't give don't a damn. Yeah, 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 I don't damn. Right and that's, and it's actually funny because I, I'm a person, I hate secrets. I just, I want to talk about everything to everyone all the time. Me too. And it's, and I have to actively remind myself to not talk about everything to everybody. Uh, and... 
So sort of friends I sometimes work on stuff with get, get annoyed at me. It's like, stop talking about it. I can't you know, yeah. stay on the talking about the thing. Right? Yeah. And, and that's sort of what that was. And it's, <laughs> and there are some things like, you know, if someone says, right, this is a secret, please don't tell anyone. Great. Cool. No worries. Yes. But unless that's been explicitly declared, everything's interesting. You're excited. Yeah. You want to tell people about, about your life. Yeah. But I mean, we're as a species, you know, don't we, I mean, and I know the answer is no, not all of us, because we all care about such different things. But to yeah. me, there is no higher goal than figuring out the universe, mm. you know, from the micro to the macro and everything in between. And we do that by discovering things and then sharing the things we've discovered. Yeah. And collectively, yeah, them. collectively we move towards a better understanding of what's going on with everything and yeah. going to do cooler stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. There's, I mean, again, LA, it always has both the extremes, people being very cagey, but then people being very open and sharing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also, it gets easier when um, there is a bit of a, now that I think about it, a layer of kind of once you've sort of proven yourself. It's like, who is this person? Oh, this person's cool. Okay, now let's start talking freely about everything. Yeah. And I mean, I was lucky when I first came here. I mean, it was a hell of an experience. I came here as like a random, completely unknown, you know, newbie from Australia. Yeah. Magic Castle was some... I I had one thing that sort of demonstrated value at the time, which was the build change that I do. Mm -hmm. And I happened to... I had no idea who John Lovick was at the time. Yeah. But I was showing it to somebody, and then he noticed it. And then it was this is back when Armstrong, Lovick, and Del Gordio were hanging out a lot. Yeah. Ended up hanging out with the three of them. They're like, who's this kid with great build change? All right, let's talk to him. Yeah. And had this just amazing experience of like getting the real inside scoop on everything with those guys. And, you know, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. And so I think there's that sense when people are random unknowns, people are more cagey. Sure. Once they realize, oh, okay, you're, you're an actual person who is. Uh, you're not tangent. I realized as I'm talking about this thing, I'm, I'm realizing more about it. People I've found are more comfortable really sharing and talking with other people they know are also creators. Mm-hmm. Because when you create original stuff, you know how important it is. Exactly. You, you understand the value of it. But if you've never come up with something, you don't get how hard that is about how much of your soul you put into a piece. And yeah. why it hurts so much to have someone, you know, moving Rip around. it off. Yeah. yeah. And so people who are also creators, I find are more open with each other because they understand there's going to be that reciprocal appreciation and respect. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, the takeaway, I suppose, is just don't be a shitty person. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. That's one of those rules for life. Yeah. Rule one, don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. It's amazing I mean, how many people don't realize that. And right. You, you see that here, people who kind of get it into their heads that somehow you know, I don't know what the word for it is that attitude that you it's see it's like a false bravado that yeah you the false like I don't give a shit whatever you know I'm too <laughs> that sort of low affect that yeah I've seen a lot in Vegas as well oh People yeah, like, oh, yeah I'm so cool, whatever <laughs> well it's 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 it goes back to being self aware you know like people a lot of magicians take themselves way too seriously I mean I talked to Tom Frank yesterday and his big thing was don't be insufferable you know yeah be sufferable. Be sufferable. Suffer through other people and allow them to suffer through you. You know? It's actually, I quite like that. The fact that there is no human who doesn't need some suffering to deal with. Yeah. That acknowledgement that we're all imperfect. Yeah. Like none of us, none of us are universally great. Yeah. All of us require some level of suffering to endure. Some more but, than others. Yeah. Some are insufferable. 
Some Someone's like, too much, you can't suffer. Can't. It's like, nope, I'm out. Nope. I'm not willing to suffer what I have to suffer. From no this more person. suffering. There's no suffering. <laughs> to appreciate the things that are great about them. Yeah. Well, I think people that are insufferable... <laughs> are there great things about them? <laughs> well, I mean, some, you know, I, I think no one... But if there's if no there's one has nothing if there's something story, great you know? about them, then yeah. someone out there would yeah. suffer them. Well, it's so like, if someone is insufferable. Yeah. Well, it's like and again, yeah. I'm, this one I'm not going to name names, but I, there are people who are like Doctor House, mm-hmm. right? Who are horrible. Yeah. But so brilliant in some way that you will suffer them. Like yes. You will put up with. You will allow them all their personality flaws and their nastiness because yeah. they are actually that good. Yeah. And then a lot of people think they're that good. Yeah. But they, they can get away with it. It's the Dunning Kruger effect. Yes. They're not smart oh, enough God. to know they don't know. That freaking thing. Yeah. It's such a horrifyingly accurate sign of our civilization. Yeah. Dunning freaking Kruger. For those who don't know. Yeah. Dunning Kruger effect. Basically, that the the smarter you are, the less smart you think you are. Or the more you know, the less you feel you know. And the less you know, the more you feel you know. Yeah. You have to know enough to know how much you don't know. Yeah. Which is quite appropriate. Now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's like, yeah, that there are, what is it? And there's so many quotes about it, like that the world is filled with really capable people who are doubtful and hence don't do things because they're not sure. Yeah. And, you know, morons who are really confident, filled with confidence. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's, you know, you just, you got to find somebody who brings out the best in you. Right. Or find your, find your village. Find your village. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, that's why LA fascinates me because of all the places I've been in the world, this is the place where I feel, where I've experienced the most real connections to real people who care about the same things and want to build and create and share and, you know, make things better. And not be insufferable. There's great collaborative energy here, and it's amazing. Yeah. And the thing I like about LA because, you know, again, you do have that sort of caginess. But overall, what I love about LA compared to, you know, Melbourne was where I grew up, and I'm sure it's true for most cities. Here, people are mostly, ironically, less. Excuse me, burping. Uh, less competitive in a bad way. Competitive, healthy competition is good. Like, for example, back in Melbourne, if someone lands a TV show, there's a lot of kind of, oh, I could have done that. You know, why didn't I get that? Damn it. Whereas here, if someone lands a TV show, there's a hundred other TV networks. It's like, oh, I'll go get my own one. The market here is so vast. Mm-hmm. It's functionally infinite. Yeah. That there's no kind of fighting for limited space. Whereas in smaller cities, like where I came from, there's a there's a more of a sense of, if someone got that contract, I might have got that contract. Yeah. Here, there is so much to potentially get that if you're not getting it, it's not because someone else is taking it. It's because you're just not working hard enough. Yeah. And I absolutely include myself in that. You know, of course, I'm yeah. very aware I'm not working hard enough to get out there and get the work. But I know that it's not because someone else is taking it. Yeah. If there is more work out there. Well, yeah, we talked about that at, at lunch is, you know, you don't do anything unless there's a hard deadline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is the, the thing that frustrates me the most about my inner self and and um, something that i completely and totally relate to i think that's um, pretty it's not uncommon you know, yeah a lot of people relate to well that. so is there a th- is there a goal that you have that you want that you're just like not following for that reason yeah actually quite a few things yeah. there's some um, i do there i mean i've been working sort of forever in between all the other things i've been working on you know i'm like creating material and trying to create shows and create bits and routines and ideas and websites and businesses and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And the really just getting kind of 
the you know the Simon Coronel show, which is sort of and that's taken many forms. Just putting yourself out into the world in the form of a show, the thing yeah. that represents who you are and what you care about and what you want to share about the amazing things you've discovered and learned. Yeah, and I've sort of taken so many different runs at that from so many different angles, and I just do not know what that looks like yet. Yeah, and I've do- I've developed that over last seven, eight, whatever years, mainly by signing up for like comedy festivals and fringe festivals yeah. that give me that deadline that forced me to put a show together. Yeah. And they've all been frustratingly like, like not there, not even close to where I want them to be. Yeah. But each time I've got a bit closer in some way or I've got further away, but then worked out but why. But you knew why it was further. Yeah. How and I still don't know what that looks like. And I mean, that's the big thing is at some stage, I would love to actually have a, a semi-regular ongoing show. Like yeah. A la Cohen, Minkin, uh, you know, Ivan, like the other people doing that. It's yeah. It's a yeah. model now. Yeah. And I kind of, but I want it to be really, really good. I want it to be something I'm actually proud of. Yeah. And it's, that's not what I have yet. You know, so that's. Well, fun. who are you? And what have you learned? And what do you want to communicate? Oh man, I've learned that I talk too much on stage. That's yeah. a big thing. It sounds simple, but it's huge. Yeah. There was a line, um, actually it was, it was Derek, uh, Derek D told me a uh, way back, like seven or eight years ago, when it was, I think it was my second time performing at the castle. Uh, and I think he said it was a line of Webbers or someone. Like, remember, it's a show, not a tell. Oh, great. That's and great. it's absolutely true. Like, yeah. I still struggle with that instinctive desire to tell, to share, to explain. I want, I want to explain this. Yeah. But realizing that, like, the majority of people are not interested in that. And that frustrates me, but you might as well tell the ocean to turn back. You know, you can't make yeah. people care. Yeah. So worst case, the big thing I'm focusing on right now when I'm doing shows, whether it's, you know, 20-minute sets at a venue or full-hour theater shows on tour or whatever, right now I'm taking, I'm consciously taking a break from trying to have any kind of message or sense of achievement leaving the audience is learning something. I'm focusing just on doing an hour of solid entertainment and audience engagement to just kind of train myself in that skill and those skills. Yeah. And it's been really good. It's been really cathartic to just go, you know what, forget all the things you care about. You, you of, literally get off your high horse. Yeah, completely. And stretch your legs. And just go, and it's not even really a high horse. I, I, I meant that yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. My soapbox. Mine is very high. <laughs> like my, my highest, one of the things I care about the most is I love... And every now and then I, I achieve bits of this for the few receptive people in the crowd, leaving them understanding more about themselves and the universe than when they came in. Yeah. That's what gets me, gets me off the most. In yeah. Show. That's what, when, I, when you're, you know, when you, it's a running joke, when you perform, the lights are in your eyes. You can't see much of the audience. And so you learn to listen for the sounds. Yeah. Same with comedians, same with everybody. Yes. And in magic, you get laughter. Good, great sound. Laughter is a good sound. Applause is a good sound gasps are a good sound mm-hmm. but my favorite sound personally is the ah, oh, like yeah. the sound of under of illumination of sure. understanding and it's the hardest one to get because again most people aren't interested aren't receptive and that shouldn't and i'm now getting better at live and let live like i i used to judge them for that now i don't it's like who am i to say what they should want you know yeah. and care about from a show yeah and so now I'm taking a break from trying to get that sound. And my shows are way better as a consequence. Yeah. Like they've been getting much better reactions and much better responses. And so at some stage, I'd love to come back to that yeah. and find a way to leave people understanding more about themselves and perception and reality and the things that, that I really care about. Yeah. But well, those, it's like, it, it's not as much that they, that you don't 
I mean, I'm just pontificating. I could be totally oh, old. Oh, right. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's as much that they don't care about what you're saying. It's that they aren't actively open to it. Yeah. Because, like, you and I could sit down on that couch and watch a commercial, and you could be like, that was a really good commercial, and I could be weeping. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, it's completely. two different... Yeah. And I have that happen weekly. <laughs> well, that's that thing, and that's and the reason why I'm not able to do that is I'm that's on me, right? That means I am not yet good enough to be able to guide an audience through the experience I want to guide them through. You know, I don't know enough yet, or I haven't worked out a way to do it, or well, see, that's I agree and disagree, but mm. and that was kind of what I meant by the commercial thing is like someone can appreciate it and not have the experience mm -hmm. that you want them to yeah. have, but it's not your fault. Yeah, that's fair. You know. Well, sort of, I mean, like everything, I think about magic. I mean, everything about humanity is a set of bell curves. Yeah. Right? It's nothing is true of everybody. Nothing is false of everybody. All you can do is make general overall statistical statements. Like, take, take like, the question, is something a deceptive magic trick? Yeah. Is this trick strong or weak? Yes. You know, invisible deck is strong... Linking paper clips is pretty weak, mostly. Yeah. All that means is on. I wish I could like do a diagram to visualize this in a podcast, but a strong trick has the bell curve shifted to the upper end, which means most people are going to be stunned by it. Some people are going to be mostly stunned, but kind of have an idea. Yeah. Some people are going to have a pretty strong idea. Some people are going to see exactly how it's done. Yeah. But and it gets weak, fewer and fewer. Yeah. And a weak trick is the opposite. Like there are some people are going to be stunned by it, but most are going to see how it's done, and then the gradient in between. And all you can ever really do is try and skew your bell curve as far as you can. You yeah. know, no show is going to be loved by everybody. No yeah. show is going to be hated by everybody. You can, all you can do is like edge that bell curve higher and higher. Yeah. You know. Well, and also, I mean, in in performance, you have the ultimate excuse to doctor your data. You know, <laughs> because using the bell curve, you you can set like a very specific set of requirements for, yeah. for your for your data. So yeah, like, I want, this is what I, you know, like if I can fool one person in the audience mm -hmm. with this trick, then it's worth it. That's something that Jordan does frequently, which I love, is he will do a trick for one person and everybody else will see the method, yeah. but he totally fucking blows somebody's mind. Yeah, well I love stuff like that. I mean, I was talking to Lubbock about this a while back, that sort of, Paperball over the head type effects. Yeah, where one person's amazed, the other see how it's done. And I mean, they appeal to me, you know, as the scientist, engineer, truth seeker, because you get to share the truth. Yeah, which is like I, I ironically find magic frustrating because to me, the secrecy puts up a barrier between you and the audience that gets in the way of genuine interaction and you know connection between you and the crowd. Yeah, and I'm always obsessed with looking for ways around that. Like I sort of. Yeah, try to connect with an audience despite the fact that there are these secrets because they know that you know that you know something they don't know, and yeah, that's one of the reasons. I, I kind of, I honestly often wish that I actually had an affinity for juggling or music or comedy because then you don't have to hide anything. Yeah, and it frustrates me that the art and you and you're allowed to get really meta about yeah, those other things. Exactly. You can't do meta magic. Yeah, I mean, you, you can, but only you can. magicians. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it just gets gets messy and yeah, yeah, it's very hard to do right. Um, and, and I guess the closest thing would be paper balls over the head. Yeah, or, or and there, yeah, like and that. there are many sort of tricks in that genre. That I mean, yeah. one of my favorites. That um, it's funny. It's it's a very polarizing trick. It's basically paper balls over the head. One of the things that frustrated me about paper balls over the head, and I also worked on um, Steve Bedwell's rope version of it, which mm -hmm. is a great routine. It is a great routine. And I worked on that for a long time. One of the hardest routines I've ever performed. Because there is so much going on in that routine, it's mm -hmm. a masterpiece. But there's, 
you're managing so many angles and perceptions and the person on stage and everything. And I put it in my show and it frustrated me because I was putting that in to go look at how fascinating it is that you can have this, manage this person's perceptions so that they're seeing and not seeing so much. Yeah. Whereas the reaction it got from most people in the audience was, ha, 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 they're dumb for not seeing it. Yeah. And that frustrated me because that's so far from the truth. Yeah. And so I took it out. The, who is it? Um, I think uh, Armando Lucero mm. did paper balls over the head in the Dominican Republic for yeah. uh, uh, BJ Bueno's thing that he yeah. does down there. And his thing was, you know, inviting someone up to the stage. And he's like, you're going to be fooled by this because you're smart. He's mm-hmm. like, I need somebody in the audience who's really yeah. smart. So it wasn't a you're done for not getting yeah. it. It's like he set out with well, that. This is, and this was the thing that, and I, I love Armando and his routine like that. And I found frustratingly that I would sort of say something similar, you know, like watch this because this is how, so that, and people just assumed I was just saying that to pretend to be nice. Yeah. And it's just like, damn it, you know, people assume that you're not telling the truth, which yeah. is so frustrating. Well, uh, but at that point, you can't make somebody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, again, that's their own shortcoming. You well, so what I came up that. with was this card routine that I love and is because I realized I needed a trick that looked as difficult as it was. Okay. Which is an unusual thing to need to try and do because normally it's the other way around. Yeah. Either faking great skill or hiding your great skill. And it's basically paper balls over the head in the form of a card and a number using a bunch of really like sort of like Kelly cops and things like that where they can see what's going on. And I found that I was like, I'm obsessed with surveying the audience, like after shows, like either myself or through other people or online to find out what they're really thinking about. Yeah. And the big metric that I cared about was, uh, people were now reacting the way I hope they were. They were like, wow, that's amazing how much effort goes into something that looks so simple from their point of view. Yeah. And also I found that, I also tested to make sure that I could still fool them with the techniques that had been quote unquote exposed yeah. to check that it wasn't damaging magic. Yeah. And the, and, it, and I think it, it does do some harm, but to me the good outweighs it. Like okay. the net karmic gain is positive. Yeah. Not everyone agrees with that. That's a you know philosophical point of view. Sure. But I found that people mostly reported they respected magic more having seen that trick yeah. than before. And that was what I really wanted to get across because most people have no idea. Yeah. Most people still think it's basically snap your fingers and wave a wand because they just have not the slightest concept of what it really takes. Yeah, it's almost self-defeating in that purpose yeah. where in this day and age, everything is so passive. Yeah. I, was it you and I were talking about user experience last night? Oh, yeah. We were playing 49 boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is that very passive thing, yeah. you know, and so... Yeah, most they, people aren't used to the idea of having a sense of agency yeah. in anything. Yeah, but so when you do something and you do assign a magic movement uh, to it you know like a snap or a yeah. wave or a wand people go if you do it really effortlessly you and you're a good technician yeah. magician people go yeah it's okay. easy. you just have powers or whatever even if they don't literally believe that they kind of feel that they feel that or yeah. they go like i don't know how the hell that prop works yeah. it's a deck of cards no well, it's yeah, amazing trick, deck, whatever it's yeah. amazing how and i mean it's, it's almost it's, self-defeating in that yeah. way and i mean and Which i fun. you know as a person like i like to know the truth and I want other people to know the truth. That's just, and that's a philosophical, that's an arbitrary philosophical point of view. Yeah. That's, there's nothing objectively <coughs> about that. But, and so when people, I like giving people a glimpse of the truth, that <coughs> this is a difficult, complex, challenging art form. I think that's so much more amazing and more beautiful than the illusion, the escapist illusion of magic. Yeah. 
And many people disagree with me about that, and that's okay. I mean, it frustrates me, but it frustrates them. I frustrate them as much as they frustrate sure. me, so it's fine. You know, yeah. what are we going to do? You know, yeah. It's very topical right now as we try to find acceptance of people who have vastly different views from us yeah. in all kinds of things. Well, and you know, especially with the special coming out on Tuesday, mm. David Blaine's Beyond yeah. Magic, where he was just on Fallon, and he did some really strong card magic, and then he spits a frog out at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the clip? I haven't seen that, no. He that he great. does all this great card magic, and he's like, I want to show you one more thing. And he's like, there's a story about this guy who can make his stomach into an aquarium. And so he like drinks a bunch of water, and then basically, you know how in his last special he was yeah. spouting? He and this one, he just like regurgitates oh, a frog. Great. And then he it. swallows it again. He like regurgitates it. It's like moving around, and he's showing it to people. And then, like, before Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Fallon's like, all right, we're going to go. He's like, let me put it back where it goes. And he just drinks the frog. And he's like, oh, and, then, and then everybody freaks out. So now he's done this, he's done this, like, very classical regular card mm. magic. And then he's done this weird thing. And one of my friends who was, like, into magic, we were roommates in college. He learned some stuff. Mm. And... He messaged me on Facebook and he was like, what the fuck was that? How did he do that? And I was like, he just, he just did, did, it. did it. Yeah. And he was like, wait, no, I don't, what do you mean? He just uh, did it. Right. Like, how does it, I, I was it. like, yeah. And it's, so it's that weird thing of like, I don't, I don't remember how I started on this. It's like a tenuous thread that I'm like. I mean, like, appreciating what's real versus what's fake. Like thinking, yeah. you know, knowing the truth about what's actually involved. Versus, yeah. And we, yeah. And we're at yeah. this point where it's like, you know. That's kind of the meta thing yeah. is just do it for real. Just do it. And I mean, I love just do we, it. We were talking about that at lunch as well, that taking delight, watching people learn more about reality mm -hmm. to their surprise. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> horror. And disappointment. You know? well, that's the thing. I mean, again, as, a, as an arbitrary philosophical point of view, I, I will always take the painful truth over the beautiful lie. Yeah. No matter what. And, Give me an example. Um, the... Magic's really hard. Yeah. And it, that if I want to get good at this stuff, it's going to be an incredible, insane amount of work. Yeah. Like, wouldn't it be great if you could just bam? And, I mean, that's the way that most, a lot of magic products are sold. It's like the promise of self-working, you will now be this powerful, godlike figure yeah. with no effort. Yeah. That's what everyone wants. That's yeah. What, that's why people like Harry Potter, just swish and a flick and the thing levitates. Yeah. No real effort required. Yeah. You know, or minimal. Versus realizing, no, you got to... You know, if you want I don't know. I heard charms class was pretty hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know about this no African. No, no, not half as hard as actually doing a thread-based levitation. You I'm know? sure and that's true. Learning, I go through these phases every few years. I go, I'm going to get back into thread work, <laughs> and it lasts about a week before I just flip the table and go, no, this can f off. I'm yeah. done. And then three years later, I'm like, you know what? Maybe not. Let's try thread work again. Yeah. Just, you know, the painful truth of just how hard this, how hard everything is. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I derailed your Harry Potter thing, but you yeah, were that's cool. I was pretty much done. Okay. I think I had a point though. No, I don't remember what it was. I'm having a weird day today. I'm having that's... trouble like remembering words <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm kind of spacey. Um, I a feeling. Huh? It's like the last six years for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, so let's, I mean, we've done a lot. Let's go back to the beginning. So yeah. you grew up uh, in Australia. I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. Tell me about Melbourne. Melbourne is great. 
Mode's an amazing, beautiful. It you know, it keeps like ranking in the top five most livable cities of the year whenever they do one of those like arbitrarily ranked, you know, yeah. most livable cities, and it really is. It's, is that like the one where they go, okay, but let's pretend not everything there will eat you or kill you? <laughs> All right, so let me let me explain this. Let's <laughs> let's put this on the record because I watched Crocodile. I've got Hunter. a I've got a standard spiel about this because oh, yeah. this comes up a lot. Here we go. Um, you are if you if you're if you're an Australian. Yeah. Your odds of encountering a dangerous piece of wildlife are pretty much the same as if you're an American. Because here you have rattlesnakes. If you're in Australia. Yeah, exactly. Well, no. <laughs> here you've got rattlesnakes, bears, cougars, tarantulas, you know, all kind of, you know, things like mountain lions. Is that just a cougar? I don't it's know. It's just a cougar. Yeah, you can run into bears, get alligators. Now, if you're in the bayou in Louisiana, you might run into some gators. Yeah. In the same way, if you go to the frickin' swamps in Australia, you'll run into some crocodiles. Yeah. But if you're, like, a city dweller, you will never see one of these animals ever. Yeah. You know. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> the other thing is, it's, you can look up, if you just Google, like, Australian wildlife death statistics, it's, like, statistically zero people die ever from them. Wow. It's, like, I think zero people, no one has died from a spider bite since, like, 1987. Yeah. Because uh, we have all the antivenom now. Yeah. And there's the deadliest spider in the world still takes about 48 hours to kill you. So if you can get to a hospital, if you get bit by the world's deadliest spider, you've got two days to go to a hospital and you're going to survive. Yeah. Uh, the snakes are definitely deadly, but if you, you learn to walk heavily, heavy stomps, the yeah. snakes are more afraid of you than you are of them. Yeah. And I think like one or two people a year die from snake bites, mm -hmm. like out of, you know, 25 million or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think one person every two years dies from a shark attack, statistically. Yeah. It's like... All the wildlife deaths together, collectively, are like something like the, I don't even know, they're, they're not even in the like top the 30th. 10, something like that, yeah. after like horse riding accidents, and yeah. obviously heart disease, car crashes, like, I think deaths from like building related, you know, the amount of things. Probably, building, probably yeah. autoerotic asphyxiation. Exactly. Like it's, it's exactly I mean, it's, to get briefly political, it's like terrorism. Yeah. Like your actual odds of dying from it are just basically non-existent. Yeah. But it's more, it's conceptually scary. Yes. Like, oh my God, a snake or a spider, that feels more terrifying than a car crash or literally falling off a horse. Yeah. In Australia, it kills more people than all the other animal related deaths. Well, that's because horses and cars are necessary to get places. <laughs> I don't need a snake at any point in my life. I love snakes. Let's use spiders. I don't people. ever need a spider. Have you noticed way more snake people on Hollywood Boulevard recently? Yes. It's a thing. It in the last thing. six months or so, a yeah. lot of snake people. These big python things. Yeah. That, what do you think that is? I don't know. Is there like something in the pop culture recently? Going through a trend. Like, yeah, something. I don't know. These ideas have their time. Yeah. And then they get saturated. Why is it that snakes are so cool, but snake people are so weird? I don't know. don't know. I'm going to chew on that now. I'm kind of a snake person, but I don't yeah. own a snake. People I find, that own I, a snake, that's a very specific yeah. life like, I, choice. I like, I like reptiles. I yeah. think reptiles are really cute. Yeah, like yeah. lizards and geckos and oh, goannas. I'm I love listing it. Australian ones now, but yeah. yeah. What, other, what American lizards do you have? Just lizards. Yeah, I think they're really cute. I mean, I... When I see a snake, I get worried because I don't know enough to know if it's venomous or not. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, snake's wary. But if I know a snake's not venomous and it's small enough that it can't strangle me, I'm like, hey, snake, you know, let's yeah. hang out. You're cute. Yeah. And it's and I know that whereas other people are like profoundly repugnant, you know, mm -hmm. with reptiles. Yeah. The reptiles are repugnant to them. I mean, you know, yeah. I got it. I got it. Right. You got it. Yeah.
Um, for the grammar Nazis in the, in the listeners, I want them to know that I knew that was syntactically wrong. <laughs> well, so then, all right, let's get back to Melbourne and growing yeah, up there. Yeah, so Melbourne, grew up in Melbourne. Melbourne's great. Um, I mean, I grew up, I'm just, you know, your classic shy, awkward, you know, kid who didn't really fit in anywhere. You know, pretty standard in magic. That's not unusual. Yeah. But I didn't get into magic until I was 18 because uh, I had, I had, you know, like most people, I had a magic kit when I was 12 or something like that. And it, yeah. I was like, hey, magic, we're going to learn magic. Magic's great. Turns out magic was hard, so I didn't, so I stopped. Yeah. And that's that thing about the painful truth, you know, like the actually understanding what's really going on, you know. And Can I ask how old you are now? Uh, I'm 35 now. Okay. Yeah. And the, I remember I had like a magic kit and I think I had like a couple of magic books, you know, along the way that I found in the library or oh, magic, we learn magic. Yeah. Uh, and just couldn't learn it at all. Like this, the kit was useless because they are, those things are just pieces of crap. Yeah. You, know, you can't, they tell you nothing about magic, about what it actually takes. Yeah. You know, pretend to put the coin into your other hand and actually keep it. Go, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Don't you believe that or whatever. But yeah, just that, they're, they're not written to teach. They're written to just cash in on some plastic bullshit. Yeah. yeah. And the books didn't help much either because until you can see it performed and have someone see what you're stumbling on and guide you through the experience, you're just good luck learning. Some people do, but you know, I was not one of those people. I was yeah. not nearly good enough to figure that out myself. And so I just ignored it like all the other things I got into and then discarded and then um, age 18, Melbourne University, first year, uh, I was studying psychology, software engineering, double major, uh, with a minor in Mandarin Chinese, because I was interested in everything but didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Yes. Yeah. I had no real... I remember, like, about a week before going to, going to, like, orientation week, I was lamenting to a friend that I didn't really have... I didn't have a thing, man. Your other kids had, like, musical instruments. Was I, that your quarter-life crisis? Because that, that was, was kind of mine. Yeah. That was, I mean, that's, like, my sixth life I don't know it was like 17 at the time okay but yeah was, and I remember like I tried I tried to learn like three different musical instruments at that point I'd like done like a whole heap of different sports I tried and just nothing ever just clicked I wasn't really just compelled yeah at anything and I wasn't really naturally good at anything and I was like really into video game programming at that time I was obsessed with video game video games my whole life and I'd taught myself to program like in QBasic back in 10th grade. And I was Great. really into that. That yeah. was, that was kind of my main thing that I was really into at that point. But yeah. I certainly wasn't like a natural at it. It was, you know, just like good, but not great. And then orientation week. And, and I love this because it's such an ironic origin story. So what would later become my, you know, primary life focus. Cause you know, the, the, the myth, the story most people tell is, Oh yeah, you know, you must have been into it as a kid and you must have always known you wanted to be a magician and that's that bullshit story that people think that's the way experts are made and it's very rarely the way it actually works out. Yeah. And orientation week joined a whole bunch of clubs and societies just because to try stuff out and you know, I was really intimidated by holy crap university, this is this is huge. And there was a table for the Melbourne University Magician Society. I was like, Magician Society? What what? What do you guys do? No, you magic card tricks. I'm like, oh, like I tried years ago, but I sucked at it. You know, yeah. it didn't work, didn't I clearly can't do that. They're like, well, if you join, we teach you. I was like, no, yeah, maybe have another crack at it. Maybe. Yeah. And I was dithering because it was like another ten bucks. Yeah. You know, which is non-trivial on a first year student budget. And what tipped me over the edge? What changed the direction of my life forever 
was that they had really cool membership cards. Yeah. Because I had just been given a gift of my first ever actual adult leather wallet. Wow. And I had my Velcro wallet that you know, yeah. had as a kid. Yeah. And I had this new actual like black leather wallet. And I was like, wow, adult wallet. And it had card slots. And I wanted <laughs> cards to put in the card slots <laughs> to make it look like a real wallet. You know? Yeah. So I yeah. got stuff in there. Yeah. And... And I was, apart from wanting to join clubs, I was like, oh, I'm racking up all these membership cards. This is cool. Yeah. I was like, what do you are? You guys have membership cards? Yeah, Magic Club. I'm probably going to, I'm almost certainly going to suck at it. Yeah. I did before. Why wouldn't I suck at it still? Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, we have. And they basically had playing cards as membership cards. So rather than a membership number, you had a membership playing card. So it was limited to 52 members. Wow. I was, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. And, uh, and you got a free deck of bicycle cards, which you couldn't get in Australia very easily. Yeah. They were imported and expensive. We had yeah. like, really crappy norm cards. I was like, yeah, all right. Um, I mean, that's cool. I like it. Got my... And you could choose your membership card, like which one. All the aces had gone. All the kings had gone. You know, the queens had been taken by the first four females to join. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. as it goes, people want to identify with it. What was your membership card? I, I was thinking at the time about an old Peanuts comic. I'd seen uh-huh. where they were talking about, you know, Charlie Brown was being depressed standard. And Lucy was like, look, you know, we've all got our role to play Charlie Brown. You know, we can't all be aces or Kings in the deck, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you're the two of clubs, Charlie Brown, just the lowest card in bridge. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Brown was like, eh, I don't know. Even the two of clubs wins a trick now and then. Oh, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And that idea of the two of clubs being the lowest card. I'd also just watched the karate kid again. Yeah. This idea of like Mr. Miyagi, the, the idea that the true, the, the true kind of walker of the path doesn't showboat. Mm-hmm. They just do rather than showing. I'm like, you know what? Two of clubs. Just keep it. Be chill. Don't try and be ostentatious about yeah. it. And, uh, and yeah, so the two of clubs was my membership card. Wow. Which was like a really, looking back on that was, yeah, quite the moment. And then, it's a big moment, yeah. yeah. And then, so I got my two of clubs, put it in my, my wallet. Very happy about it. Very yeah. pleased with myself. And then didn't turn up for like the first two and a half months because I forgot that I joined because I was busy, like, you know, so much stuff was going on in first year. Yeah. And finally two and a half months, you know, this is, this was my dedication. You know, this is my dedication to being a magician. Yeah. How much I cared. Like magical. Got a call, you know, on my parents' landline, you know, (laughs) back in pre-cell phone days. They didn't have a cell phone back then. And got a call from Tina, the secretary. Uh, hey, is this Simon? Yeah. Hey, this is Tina from Magic Club. Oh, yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey, we've got you down as having signed up but not turned up. Do you still want to come? I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thanks. When is it again? Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Cool. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, I did appreciate it. So I'm like, oh, yeah. I've forgotten about Magic Club. Yeah. So I rock. So Wednesday, you know, 12.55 p.m. rocks around. And I'm like, Wednesday. I was, I was meant to be somewhere. Where am I? Kind oh of, crap, man. I hate that feeling. <laughs> what am I, I supposed to I'm do supposed today? To somewhere? Yeah. And at like 10 past, I'm like, oh crap, Magic Club. Okay. Yeah. Like, got it. Come on. Should turn up to this thing. I paid money. I got a member. Let's, let's, yeah, yeah. You know. And I had not, there was not the slightest sense that this would lead to anything yeah. at that point. I did not think for a second I would have any ability or any talent. I figured at best it would be a vaguely interesting way to spend a few lunch times and. You know, and so I rocked up and I turned up late, you know, two months late and 20 minutes late. <laughs> very cool. And very cool. I'm like, hey, sorry, sorry. 
some journalists, you know, it's about maybe 30 people in the room. Yeah. And someone was in the middle of teaching something, yeah. you know. And I walked in and he was halfway through, this guy Brian, who was a friend of Michael uh, and Hannah, the founder, who founded the club. And we still keep in touch every now and then. Oh, it's great. like, it's such a weird kind of looking back on that. Yeah. You know, just a bunch of student hobbyists who are really into magic and yeah. form this club. That, and walked in halfway through and he was going, so at this point, because of the blah, blah technique, some word I didn't know, yeah. uh, you know their card is the King of Diamonds. So you could just go King of Diamonds or you could, and he does what I now know is a double turnover. Yeah. You know, or you could go, oh, this isn't your card, rub it on the table and it changes their card. Yeah. And my world exploded. <laughs> the universe froze. Yeah. Reality, I was, this was the most amazing thing I had ever seen in my entire life ever. Why? Was it him delineating the two things, going, you well, could no, do this, or you could do this? No, it was just, just I watched a double you know, turnover. away from me, I watched a playing card transform into another playing card. Yeah. That's not as a an thing. adult man. Yeah, yeah, as an adult man, as an eighteen-year-old at that yeah. point, I watched reality break in front of okay. me. Yeah, I, this like you know, world for you know everything Paul Harris talks about in the Art of Astonishment. You know, yeah. the world disappeared. Everything was gone. The white light of pure astonishment. Yeah, you know, it was it was like yeah, one of the most intense moments in my entire life. Wow. That's why to this day, to me, the double turnover is a sacred move because yeah. it was it was where all of this began for me. You know, that was the moment where I'm like, wait, what? Just what now? You know. Yeah. And the second thing that happened there was Brian didn't realize I hadn't been turning up all along. And they'd actually taught this like a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he gave me a quick refresher, quote unquote. Oh, it's the blah, you know, I know non-magicians are going to listen to this potentially. So he refreshed me on what the move was. Yeah. Accidentally explaining to me what it was. Yeah. And to go from the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life to immediately having to, it to taken immediately away. having an understanding of how that had been done and seeing how obviously not an easy technique but a relatively simple concept, the like the contrast, the leverage between those two, this simple thing produced something that powerful. Yeah. It'd be like I don't know, like a physicist learning that like from one solar cell you can produce like a hundred gigawatts of power. Like what? You know, that feeling of holy crap. Mm -hmm. And I was just so utterly fascinated at that point. And I spent the rest of the day like trying to learn this technique and fumbling through it until I could functionally perform it. Like I had to get my, do my get ready under the table to get the yeah, yeah, yeah. everything. And I went home and I showed my, my mother and my sister. And I'm like, I'm like, oh God, it was terrible. Look, I have a card. Now I rub it on the table. Now it's a different card. And they had the same reaction that I did. And I was like, oh my God, this is the most, holy crap, this is yeah. the most amazing thing ever. Your life was totally changed yeah. in that day. Because I realized years later, like 10 years later or more, that as a kid, when I was growing up, I was obsessed with, you know, when I was much younger, things like, you know, like the, the Roswell autopsy tape, you know, that we now know is a total hoax. Mm -hmm. uh, ESP, hypnosis, quantum physics, uh, like into you were all travel. into that Cold War stuff. I was I was into edge cases of reality. Yeah, I was into like the edges of what we know and what should be possible. And I didn't know that at the time. I just knew I was drawn to these things. But yeah. then aliens turned out not to be real. Probably, you know, they might be, but none of the evidence we had turned yeah. out to be real. Yeah, yeah. And ESP didn't turn out to be real. You know, no actual scientific evidence ever for that to be. But you know, I didn't know that as a kid. I'm like, and I was like obsessed with the X Files and you know, like 
actually doing like ESP tests with Zena cards, like for real, like really trying to, like looking for, you know, wanting to believe, yeah. you know, like Fox Mulder. And I was obsessed with like physics and particularly quantum physics because yeah. it's like, you know, again, these edges of It was the bleeding edge of... Yeah, yeah, of like what a possibility and what might be real or like, you know, psychic powers or parallel dimensions or realities or like anything. I was just devouring this. Hypnosis, which is real, but... Uh, not in a not way. Not the way that everyone. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing really. There was no way I could really engage with hypnosis because mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it doesn't work on everyone. It's kind of blurry, and, and so there was nothing there I could sink my teeth into. And quantum physics was real, but too complex. It was just like I just couldn't. There was nothing I could do with that. There was no way I could engage with it. And suddenly, and I didn't realize this at the time. Again, it took me a decade to understand this. That moment where the card changed and reality snapped, and then to be shown that I could actually interact with this concept, it was the first time that I experienced kind of a crack in the edge of reality that I could step through and explore yeah. and play with. And that was why that was where like my whole life focus started to go because it was the first kind of, yeah, like edge of reality I could cross over because it is, you realize that magic is literally at, at and beyond the edge of reality because all we know of reality is our perceptions and magic plays in that gulf, that uncrossable gap between perception and reality. And so it is literally things beyond the edge of our perceivable reality. And there, there is nothing to be more amazing and fascinating than that for discovering like the truth of getting, you know, reality is an asymptote. You can get close to it, but never touch it. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. But magic is sort of, for me, the, the best mechanism to explore as close to that asymptotic edge of reality as I can. And that's why it's been a never-ending source of art of fascination since then. So what is it... Uh, what, how does your, your uh, obsession with reality and mm. our asymptotic experience of it, yeah. how does that influence then the experience you try to create for an audience? Yeah, well, and that's, that sort of dance back to that idea of wishing I could share the truth, mm-hmm. but knowing I can't, or yeah. at least not without making the show pretty boring and excessively <laughs> verbose. Instead of know? turning the, the, yeah. the show into a lecture. Yeah, exactly. And most, and most of the first shows I did were basically lectures, yeah. and hence were you know, moderately poorly reviewed. You know? And like, not completely. Some people got really into it. You know, people with sort of coming from a similar direction to myself were like fascinated, but it was sort of, you know, 20% to 30% of the audience was fascinated and loved it, and the others were like, and... I like the idea of doing a magic show as a lecture. Yeah. And you being like a professor. Yeah. And it being like in the old days when people used to do that and yeah. con the audience. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's why I now realize I, I love performing and I love doing shows, but I actually love, like, I love teaching even more. Oh, me too. Because then you can actually talk about the, the truth. Like, yeah. you can actually get into the stuff. Yeah. And I like doing, uh, like I actually do academic and, you know, some academic lectures and corporate keynotes where, you know, a lot of it's, it frustrates me so much when you get people, particularly in the mentalist field, like doing bullshit keynotes where they're like, look, you know, you have this ability to, and they're just making completely fake claims mm-hmm. that are very convincing and leave people less informed about reality than when they came in. Yeah. To me, that's the, that's the most heinous crime. Apart from like, you know, rape, murder, genocide. You know. Sure. Apart from those. Yeah. Actual, Apart from the yeah, actual heinous crimes. The worst heinous crimes, like one of the most sort of kind that's of one of the intellectual most... crimes. Exactly. That's someone what I was less say. informed. Yeah. Like to add misinformation to someone's reality is just a truly, truly heinous thing yeah. in my book. You know. But a lot of again, a lot of people just don't see it that way. Yeah. People don't give a damn. But what you're gonna do, you know? Yeah. Fight the battles you can fight. You know, it's like look at James Randy, you know, he's been fighting that battle his whole life. 
you know, and again, trying to in many ways just to turn back the ocean because most of the things like, you know, the skeptic conventions and so on are like great, but they're mostly just preaching to the choir. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it doesn't achieve nothing. It does do some good stuff, but you know, it's trying to, again, you know, bailing out a boat with a thimble, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Again, it's kind of picking your battles. You know, no one person can achieve everything. You know, so, I mean, like I said, right now, I'm just focusing on trying to do good, entertaining performances. You know, forget all that stuff. You know, that's what I really care about. But, you know, no audience would know that from the shows that they're seeing right now. And I put bits of it in there. You know, the idea is to, for the people in the audience who are going to be receptive to that, I want them to know, it, like, we can connect a bit over that. But for the people who just want to see a good show, I mean, I, I had this epiphany recently when um, a girl I was seeing, and we're no longer together, but now we're still really good friends. She was, um, she's a music reviewer, among other things. And I don't go to a lot of live, a lot of live music. That's just something I've never really done. And for no real, not because I didn't want to, it was just not something that was part of the way I grew up. Yeah. And so she took me to a couple of concerts in LA, you know, which has an amazing music scene. And at the time, I was going through this whole frustration of I was working on this, this you know, hour solo theater show that was trying to communicate all these ideas that I cared about in reality, and, and it just wasn't working because, you know, it's, maybe it's an impossible task. Maybe I just haven't found a way to do it yet. Yeah. It's the bell curve, you know, get it to work for the majority of the audience at least. And we went to see um, Rudimental in concert. And, it, you know, great crowd, great show. And it just struck me that, and like it's a ridiculously obvious revelation in hindsight to anyone else, but you know the place I was psychologically at the time. You know, hundreds, if not thousands, of people turn up just to watch a band play a bunch of songs. Yeah, there was no plot arc to it. There was no thematic structure to it. There was not even a flow. There was no takeaway. It was just like watching some people do some cool shit that's fun to watch. Yeah, and that is an incredibly high achievement as a human being to be able to do that. Sure. And that was, and I was leaving the next day to go and do some gigs in uh, Colorado with, uh, with Armstrong, Lovick and Carl Hine. And it actually really, it was, I'm glad I saw it because then I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's just do the magic version of that. Let's just do a bunch of, an hour of cool shit on stage that entertains people and makes them have a good time. And that's still not to me as great an achievement as the one I was trying to get, but still a freaking great achievement and a worthwhile thing to do. And many ways more fun because it wasn't as frustrating. Yeah. Because we know there's always a market for, I want to see an hour of cool stuff. Yeah. And that there's nothing wrong with that. That was the other thing that I had to like get out of my head that, you know, to me it was like, ah, oh, no, you know, we should be aiming higher than this. Yeah. It's like, just elitism. No, so an hour of great stuff. That is a wonderful achievement for, you know, human beings. We want to see cool stuff. We want to escape. We want to embrace. We want to connect. We want yeah. The problem I find though is that magicians get locked in this trap of, well, I'm doing a marketed magic trick. People are buying it and selling <laughs> it. It must be good. So I'm yeah. going to go and do this thing. And so like, whereas you're doing good magic, mm. but you're not trying to pitch your own ideas. Yeah. It's not like, a, it's not like a, let's say a comedy show where it's about you. Yeah. You're just doing up there doing tricks. Yeah. But you're doing good, strong magic. Mm. Then, you know, people are like, well, I'm doing magic tricks. And they don't understand that there's good magic and bad magic. And so then you get to fall into this thing of like... Well, the thing that that you... And I I definitely sometimes do bad magic. That happens. Particularly with the new bits. Sure. But something I've noticed, this sort of theory that's been forming, is 
you know, perpetually working towards like the unified theory of magic, you know, which you'll never hit, but like, because how do you account for the things like, you know, the original material is usually stronger, but then an out of the box invisible deck still kills, mm-hmm. but not always, but you know, yeah. there's always exceptions to any rule that you can make Yeah, and stuff like, you know, the quote unquote too perfect theory that sort of works, but also is wrong in many ways. You yeah. know, all the things that trying to get to what the actual principles really are yeah. that might again be another asymptote, you know, we never know, but yeah. Magicians, including myself, nothing is magical to us. Nothing is amazing to us. Like almost nothing. You know, like we still get amazed by stuff, but we, it's very rare that we don't know exactly what's going on. We watch another magic show. You know what's really, what really amazes me and what fools me the hardest? And I mean, like, like when you, when, when you saw that double turnover for the Mm -hmm. first time. Yeah. Like I felt that like six months ago. Yeah. At the castle. What wrong? Uh, there's a Chinese magician. His name is Sway Lee. Oh, is that the guy doing the coin retention advantage stuff? Yes. Yeah. That. I know all those moves. Yeah. But... I know all that shit. Yeah. See, that's what fools me. It's not yeah. that I'm not amazed by the method, because I'm not amazed <laughs> by the method. I'm amazed yeah. by how it feels so I like how he does so that triple real. production. Just yeah. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, though, because you watch that and I watch that, and we go, what? That's amazing. Yeah. But we do know what's going on, right? It is yeah. a qualitatively different experience from a layman watching that, who's like, you know, it's a whole different experience for them, you know, where it really, you know, they don't know that there's even sleight of hand involved. You know what I mean? For all they know, 5% of their brain is going, maybe that's real. That's what, what, that's what I'm saying, though. Is oh, that's really? The you actually get that? I had. Oh, man, that's that, cool. Because I see so much yeah. magic. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, cause, cause I know that there is a thing where I can pretend to put a coin in my yeah. other hand, but to watch him do it yeah. and not know if he did it or yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's completely indistinguishable. From it's reality. completely yeah. indistinguishable from reality. And to yeah. me, I don't know that it matters that I know that that's a possibility. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know that it matters. I really don't. Because I had a very physical response to him yeah. doing his three coin routine. Yeah. I I was like shaking. Yeah. He did. Yeah. I mean, it's see, just that, see, that's interesting because that what you just described is kind of what I wish I could guide a lay audience through. Yeah. Kind of having the experience that we have of kind of being able to be amazed by the truth. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like knowing that you know roughly what's going on, but still having it be stunning. That's what, that's my favorite experience to have. Yeah. But I also know that, that, you know, I've learned now over the years that that is not, not every person's going to agree with that. Yeah. Some people want to pretend it's Harry Potter stuff. Yeah. They want to go in and experience magic as magic with a capital M. And like, I can't relate to that at all, but who am I also to say that that's wrong? Well, I think it's difficult that point, to find that balance between what you want to communicate, the experience you want to create and the experience your audience wants to have. Yeah. But with the thing with magic though, it's compared to, you know, theater, comedy, juggling, you know, circus, like whatever mm-hmm. monster truck rallies, you know, different things you can watch. Yeah. Magic has, I think by far the most fragmented audience experience because you go to a monster truck rally, everyone wants to watch some trucks smash into stuff, you know, you go to watch Hamlet, you all get, you're going to spend disbelief, pretend this is really a Prince of Denmark. You know, everyone gets that. They're all basically more or less on the same page. But you yeah. go to a magic show, some people want to pretend it's real. Some people just want to pick it apart and figure out how it's done. 
Some people think the magician is trying to make them think it's real, but fake, like it, it's such a fragmented experience. Yeah, you had, there's no way to make the group of people yeah. into an audience. Well, and that's what I try to do with every show I do. And I've got a lot of material, both the tricks and the presentations that I've, you know, it's, it's an uphill struggle. Yeah. It's, um, but to try and do that, every yeah. show I try and have like the first, like, part of the show to be to do the best thing I can to yeah. get us all onto the nearest thing we can to the same page. I think that's why magic and the performance of magic can learn so much from stand-up comedy. Oh, yeah. Is because that's all it is. That's all we're doing is, but we're just not doing it as well. <laughs> we're, like, every magician is just a bad comic. Right? Like, and some magicians are great comics, but yeah. like magic as a whole is just yeah. not quite as effective as good comedy. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, it depends. I feel bad. I'm gonna, I might have to take that out. No, I mean, I, to a degree, yeah, but it also depends because... I'm feeling think, salty today for some reason. I don't know what the deal uh, is. You should have seen. I did, um, I've, got my, I've got my kind of filter hat on at the moment because I, did, I recently did, it was actually back in July, I did an interview for a publication in Melbourne through a friend of a friend yeah. and it recently came out online they recently released the transcript and I was reading this going man I think I was too honest yeah like and I, I was feeling salty that day yeah I was feeling a bit like annoyed but there was nothing I said that I disagree with yeah it was just like I didn't communicate it correctly yeah exactly like if, that's if you, what I if just you read did it now. without the tone of voice and without yeah. knowing the context I'm like that could be read much more negatively than I intended it to be yes so. that's what just happened yeah <laughs> let me clarify it's cool magic is great yeah, well, because it does do things comedy can't, right? It has that experience of possibility. Sure. Amazing and transformative. Yeah. And if that's the experience that you want to give the audience, yeah. then great. But if you want to give the. Because, like, great stand up comedy is not about the laughs. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's the that's goal, element, is yeah, that, that you want the audience yeah. to laugh. But there's a higher purpose. Yeah, the shared experience of humanity that we have and can. Yeah, 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 and so and you know, and that's why people like Louis C.K. and mm -hmm. Marin are so huge, yeah. is because they're just saying what everybody experiences. Yeah. They're they're just speaking to these universal truths, yeah. and all these things that you know but aren't aware that you know yeah. or that you're you're not well, conscious sort of, of knowing. I mean, magic at its best, kind of. I think one of the things it can tap into is that universal truth that that of like profound uncertainty about reality. You know, you never know, you know, there are yeah. mysteries, there are things we can't know. And it's, yeah. It's sort of weird that... But isn't it kind of a, a crutch to just have the one universal truth? Like, this is the one that we've got, yeah. and then these other art forms have yeah. like seven or eight that they can well, play with. That's yeah. funny, because I keep thinking about when doing sort of variety shows in yeah. whatever capacity with, you know, comedians and musicians and jugglers and burlesqueteers or, you know. Yeah. And it's... I just sort of think about the logistical, the different things the art forms have over each other. Yeah. Both for an audience, but also the person doing it. Like a comedian, no props. Oh, man. Oh, that's great. You know, yeah. the idea that you can play to an audience of unlimited size with nothing. Yeah. I envy that so much. Yeah. You know, I need to take a suitcase of crap when I'm doing a, you know, a cruise ship, which yeah. is an easy thing for me. But, but then as a comedian, if you are not connecting with the audience, you are dead yeah you are bombing and it's going to be an hour of horror for you and for them yeah as a magician worst case the magic is good even if the, you're not connecting and yeah. your jokes are not hitting and worst case at least you had some wow you know stuck cool visuals and some amazing things happen yeah well you've got that flaw that the comedian doesn't have as their safety buffer yeah you know as a musician you know worst case you can still play your music and again you can play to any size audience but 
Yeah. Depending on what you play, you might have even more baggage than a magician. Yeah. You, know, you have to bring your amp and your instrument and your, mm -hmm. you know, everything. But then you can touch places emotionally through music that a comedian or a magician just can't do. Yeah. You know, you can share things in different ways. Like just the different, yeah, strengths and weaknesses yeah. that different art forms have. Yeah. It's all largely academic, but learning things from the other art forms. Yes. You know, looking at how does a musician engage with the crowd? How does a, that's why I love, I'm obsessed with clowning. Like, yeah, like good clowning, not like bullshit red nose clowning. I not that you. that's bad. Like, yeah, if you're a clown, sure. Like, yeah. you know, not no, I that. understand. Yeah. But yeah, like you know, Russian clowning, French clown, Gaulier style, like the really intense stuff that is about that, really connecting to that human shared humanity in the room. Mm -hmm. And I've been recently when I see good clowning, I actually realize it's my favorite thing to watch in the world right now. And um, I've been doing like clowning workshops whenever I can with, with people like whose performances I like. And it's been doing so much for my performances. Like it's really been helping. Because, because one of the things, so there's a performer uh, called Dr. Brown, Phil Burgess. I don't know if you've seen him or uh, LA based, saw him in Australia a couple of years ago. I'd heard good things. And uh, the show I saw of his was one of my favorite things I'd ever seen on a stage. And I actually realized I had this epiphany a while ago that, my top five in no particular order, my top in, you know, how do you mm -hmm. pick one favorite? Yeah. My favorite things I'd ever seen on stages actually were clowning shows. But at the time, like most people, I didn't actually know what that word meant. Yeah. You know, most people, you say clown, you think rainbow, wing, red nose, kind of scary. Yeah. You know, whereas clown with a capital C, you know. And I realized like clowning means a lot of different things, but in this context, it was sort of, in theater, you have a fourth wall, right? You, yes. Forget the audience exists, you inhabit the reality of the performance. In comedy, there is no fourth wall. You talk directly to the audience. Yeah. And one of the things that distinguishes clowning is it straddles the two. You are inhabiting this fictional reality of your universe on stage, but also being aware of the existence of the audience and checking in with them. And the sort of the, the, the Phil slash Brown slash Gaulier school, as I understand it so far, because I'm still very new to this, is also this concept of like build, creating the show in collaboration with the audience, mm -hmm. very much doing something, making an offering almost a la improv, yeah. but seeing what the audience thinks of it. And if they like it, exploring that further and playing with them in that regard. And if they're not into it, going in a different direction. So letting the audience very much collaborating with the audience <coughs> to create the show, which is so different from, you know, most things. Yeah. And, and so I realized all my favorite things, I mean, uh, Phil's show, uh, Slava's Snow Show. Uh, I, I a, lot of, a lot of people have seen that. Just amazing. Like a uh, Russian clowning show. Just can't really describe it. Okay. That, that's the thing about clowning. It's often very hard to describe because a bunch of weird crap happens on stage and you're like, I don't really know what happened, but it was incredible. Yeah. It was captivating. And that's often the mark of clowning that you can't really, if you describe what happened, it wasn't really that interesting. But then if it's, I don't know, it's really hard to nail it down. Uh, a Japanese comedy you comedy duo called Gamajabat, a show they did in Melbourne oh, about 12 years ago now, just stunning, captivating. Um, Cirque du Soleil's Allegria, it's my favorite Cirque du Soleil I've ever seen. Again, a lot of that, there was obviously a big clowning component to that, along with many other things as well. But yeah, sure. I realized like, holy crap, clowning is what I'm obsessed with. And so, and I was doing this workshop uh, with Phil a while back, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, it's brutal, but that's usually a sign that it's good. Yeah. You know, unless you're feeling the burn, you know, your muscles aren't working out. Yeah, unless, yeah. Unless yeah. it's could tearing your soul to shreds. What was hard it's, about it? Because so one of the, the concepts of the workshop was a lot of the exercises were based on going up in front of the group and just being told to do something. 
do a thing, do anything, pretend mm-hmm. to make a cup of coffee, bounce a bottle, whatever, mm-hmm. and then check in with the audience to see if they're liking what you're doing. If they're liking what you're doing because they're laughing or smiling or applauding, or whatever, do more, continue to explore it. And if they're not, do something else instead. Yeah. So first of all, you've got this very difficult improv component of just come up with random stuff to do. Yeah. And most of the time, they don't care. They don't like it because it's not interesting or good. Yeah. And so it's just this like constant brutal crushing. But the thing that really was great about it for me is I struggle, among with the many things I struggle with, I struggle to remember to really, most performers struggle to connect with an audience, to really observe and see the audience. Yeah. Most performers perform at the audience. Yes. Not to them or with them. Yeah. You know, you're just doing your line, doing your thing, throwing at the audience and not really checking if it's landing. And it was almost like working with a personal trainer who's like, you know, keep maintain form, like, the, you know, nudge you and everything. Yeah. And Phil would, to me and to the other people, constantly be saying, you know, check in with us, look at us. Yeah. Look at, look at us all. Are we enjoying it? We're not. No, okay, so stop doing that. Do something else. You know, and then people would also do the other thing. They would do a bit that the audience loved and then get a different bit. Yeah. So, but it was that being constantly like prodded and nudged, like, look at us, check in with us, check in with us, look at the audience, look at us all, look at everybody, really see how we're experiencing your show right now. And that immediately started making my magic shows better. And it's something I still struggle with, but now I'm like much more aware. And it's going to be, you know, a lifelong journey of like really checking in how people are responding. And I've already noticed like the reactions getting better because I'm really focusing on who are these people? What are they experiencing with this? Yeah, like, it makes you so much more present yeah, when you're checking completely. in. Yeah, completely. And I mean, that was ever since. About three, three and a half years ago, I did a gig in Germany for four months at a variety theater. And that was a whole, a very intense experience. I'd never done a contract that long before. And I got it completely randomly out of um, a fringe festival show I was doing. Sometimes those things pay off. Yeah. Usually they don't, but you know, sometimes they do. They pay off an experience. Yep. and connections and everything. And I was about to do 147 shows over four months. And about a month in, I was like struggling to keep it fresh. Yeah. You know, not to just go, th- not to go through the motions. I was going to name names, but you know, <laughs> the, uh, not to do a so-and-so. Yeah. And, and I just, that's not to name. Yeah, exactly. Best not to. And I emailed Matt King. Uh, who I'd met a couple of times and, you know, at the time figured like he'd at least remember vaguely who I was and that I wasn't insufferable, hopefully. And was that's like, the goal. Yes. Yeah, right? Please God. I hope they remember I wasn't awful. Yeah, exactly. I, they I, don't need to know my name. And to hope that I wasn't accidentally awful. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, with the best of intentions, you can still end up being annoying. Being insulting. You know, yeah. You yeah. can. It happens. It's dangerous. Yeah. And I emailed him and basically said, Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing these shows in Germany and, how do you keep it fresh? How do you look so engaged every show? Oh my God, I did, how? And yeah. he gave me some really good pieces of insight that later on, because my, my act at the time was very much broadcast magic. Like I'm doing magic and you're watching me do magic. Yeah. And there were bits where I interacted and had things examined and chatted about, but it was still very the same every this time. This is doing this year. Yeah, there wasn't that genuine responsiveness to the audience. Mm-hmm. That, and, you know, obviously one of the things that makes Max, Max's show particularly great is it's so interactive. It's so yes. different each time. You're watching people go through these experiences. And he said as much that he tries to create opportunities for people to do stuff. Yeah. Things he has to respond to and be present with in real time. But even in the passive routines, 
looking at the audience and looking who's laughing, who's not laughing, you know, what's what's going on, who are these people? Reacting to someone laughing. Exactly. That's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. And seeing them rather than just looking at them. Yeah. And ever since then, after Germany, I started to work on, because at the time I never brought people on stage. Yeah. Because I was aware, self-aware enough to understand how difficult it is to make that work well. Because we've all seen performers do horrible jobs with their audience members on stage and just yeah. shit all over them and just be, ugh. You know, it's just, my uh, least favorite thing. Yeah, it's just oh, awkward and horrible and often they're just oblivious. Yeah. They're not thinking about the other person. The person is a prop and not. Yeah, exactly, you know, rather than human being. Participant. With, yeah. yeah. And, and I was aware, I was aware enough to know that I didn't know how to do that well yet. Yeah. And so I just didn't. Yeah. Like I'd rather not do this awkwardly and weirdly. And after Germany, I started working on material, like dipping a toe into that place and bringing people on stage, realizing how necessary that was going to be if I ever did a similar gig yeah. to keep me in the moment, to keep every show being different for me, yeah. as well as for the audience. And so now that's sort of my favorite kind of material. Now that I've got a sense of it and I've become more better at relating to people in real time on stage and being aware of their experience and being experienced enough that I don't have to think about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I have spare cognitive capacity to think about what they're experiencing. Yes. And react to that in real time. Yeah. Nurture their experience of it. Ooh, I like that. Nurture their yeah. experience of it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. To guide them through a, a, a pleasant a experience. A tantric appreciation. Exactly. Of that. Well, that's, that's the other thing about clowning that came yeah. up is if someone, if you do some random bit, and they're enjoying it, and you go further with it, and they keep enjoying it, do that for an hour. Yeah. Forget the rest of the show. If they're enjoying what you're doing, and they're having a good time with it, dude, that is That's great. the goal anyway, yeah. right? Don't, fin don't even finish the trick. Yeah. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The goal is, you know, I mean, depends on what you care about. Sure. But, I mean, a show that you... Isn't the goal of a performer to yeah. entertain the people watching it. Yeah, but more importantly, having a show, and like we've all been to shows like that very rarely, where you are just so there in the moment as an audience member. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah, this is... Whatever's happening is just feels so real and connected. That, ex that feeling, oh my God. That's one of the... And that's those clowning shows I, I said I love. Yeah. That's what I felt during those shows. Yeah. And if you can do that by just riffing on a stupid bit for an hour... Damn well, you should. Damn well, and you should it's that. great too because an audience will know when you're riffing. Yeah, they feel it, and yeah. they're electrically charged yeah. just like you are because yeah. they know that they're in uncharted waters. Well, corollary to that, it can be faked sometimes. It's not easy to, because I've been to shows where I was feeling that, and I found out later actually that happens every night. But it was okay. You know, it didn't matter. It I've never, I've never had that happen in a magic show. I've yeah. never felt. Oh yeah, not in a magic show. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, never in a magic show. And, I, and sometimes I'm a little wary because I, I do, I'm obsessed with stand-up comedy and I listen yeah. to people talk about it all the time and I watch a fair amount of live stand-up. Mm. And if there's like a really good riff going on and the whole crowd is fucking into it and we're yeah. riding it like a wave, yeah. I do like kind of, it takes me out of it a little bit. I'm like, is this real? Yeah, exactly. You know, like well, that's just a magic trick. Like we're too genre savvy. We're too genre savvy, and we're also magicians. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like is this a magic trick right, right now? Yeah, we're doing. Even though magic and comedy are different, they have more in common than they have differences. We're yeah. basically in the same industry. Yeah, we're yeah, doing stuff for audiences. We're yeah. in the same job. But I mean, I mean, yeah. I can, one exception. I'm sure there are more than this, but uh, Williamson, watching David Williamson, mm -hmm. he's one of the maybe the only, definitely one of the few magicians that makes me still feel that. Yeah, like electrifying. Yeah, like so there in the moment, and yeah. like because you know with him, he's kind of like. 
makes me think of Quentin Tarantino in that with Tarantino, what makes one of the things that makes his films great is you know he doesn't necessarily follow the rules. Quote, you trust him. Well, you know that he might just kill a protagonist. Yeah. You know, most movies won't do that. Yeah. But Tarantino, you don't know what the heck he's going to do. Yeah. So you are so electrified because, like, yeah. you know, once you're, like, once when you're a kid, you don't know the protagonist is going to survive. Yeah. You're like, oh, no, Aladdin, you might die. Oh, no, Aladdin. Yeah. As now, you know, oh, yeah, the protagonist is going to survive. They'll, they'll get to, the girl and the guy will get together. You know what's going to happen. And but with a Tarantino, you're like, anything could happen. Anything goes. You don't know. Yeah. And Williamson reminds me of that in that you know that he's willing to just go with some insane moment yeah. and run with it. And so it's so electrifying. And what I, what, I, what I like about that and what I find similar to that in situations where it's not about mayhem necessarily. Yeah. Like Williamson, you know, can be yeah. very surprising. You yeah. know, things that are surprising, but it's about like you just, you can, you trust them. Yeah. Like Williamson, yeah. you trust him. You're in good hands. He's, yeah. you know, he's yeah. a phenomenal technician. He's funny, but he's lovable. Yeah. Immediately, he's lovable. Yeah. And also, you can tell clearly he's capable. Yes, well. exactly. That's why you trust him. Yes. Yeah, okay. He's capable and he's lovable. And the same thing with Tarantino's mm-hmm. films. You know, yeah. you know everybody loves him. Yeah. This guy, I trust him. I'm on board. Yeah. And so, if you're doing that in a performance that isn't, uh, enhanced by mania or you know yeah. isn't isn't mayhem uh, on stage that's what you have to work on yeah. is to get people to be in that moment it's got to be okay i trust to go on this way yeah. and well, then you have to figure out how you do that with whatever character you do well that was something i realized a few years back was one of my favorite things to it because you know that thing we as humans, we tend to try and create the things we ourselves would like to experience. Yes. Right? Yeah. You know, and that shows a lot about who you are, the kind of thing you create is yeah. what you would want to want yourself. Well, having said that, I think a lot of magicians don't do that. Yeah. Like they're not thinking about, would I enjoy watching this show? Oh, yeah. Totally. About, this is me. This is the me show. Let's look at me. Exactly. Yeah. Look how great I am. Yeah. That's, what, that's another thing that I love about stand-up comedy. One of the things I think magic should learn is that, yeah. you know, some of the best comics are doing material they love. Mm. My favorite comedians laugh at their own jokes. They're in it with the audience. They're playing together with their audience. Well, at the same time, and there's also plenty of, like, bad stand, again, to contrast, there's plenty of bad stand where you can tell it's all about the form. Sure. And they just just like the idea of them with the mic, look at me, I'm a stand comedian, hey, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, with magic, I realized a long time ago, well, with anything, not just magic, that... One of my favorite things to experience, I think this is pretty universal, is the twin experience of A, thinking, I have, where is this going? Yeah. I don't know where this is going. Yeah. But at the same time, trusting it's going somewhere. Yeah. And though, one without the other is terrible. Yes. Where is this going? Is this, this is going, I don't know, I don't think this is going anywhere. Yeah. Versus, oh, I know where this is going. It's still fun, but. Not as interesting. Yeah. Whereas when you don't know where it's going, but you trust it's going somewhere, again, Williamson, right? Mm-hmm. Like front and center. Yeah. It is the most electrifying experience. And that's why most of the bits I, I work on now, I, I try to kind of hit those two emotions together. And that's why when, when I like look at a whole show, like a 20-minute set or a 70-minute full-length show or whatever, I always try and start with, again, standard theory, build credibility. Yeah. I do something, like I often do like a multiplying ball routine. So they go, all right, this guy has some serious physical skills, 
Therefore, you know, this is not their conscious thinking, but sure. right, this is a person who's worked on stuff. This is a capable human being. He's done, a, he's done his Yeah, this practice. is a person who's capable of work and achievement. Okay. Yeah. And then go into some bits where, have you ever seen my bit with the romance novel? No. And the gummy worm? It's, I just pull out a romance novel and start reading a passage from it. And it's like, like where, what's, what's he doing? Where's this going? By that point, they're willing to go with you and trust it goes somewhere. And then when it does pay off, mm-hmm. the trust is built further. Yeah. And so the show gets more interesting and yeah. you take them to unexpected places. Yeah. Yeah. And then my, one of my favorite bits to do that, like, I know other people like as well. It's not just, I'm just so good. Like, I know people have actually enjoyed this. Yes. Yeah. Starts off as it's nine minutes long, which is long. That's a long bit. And it's basically just doing, it looks like, like two thirds through a magic show, just going into an improv bit, improv sketch, telling a story and getting suggestions from the audience and incorporating them into the story. Yeah. And it ends with a prediction. But there's no hint it's going anywhere for nine minutes. For all yeah. they know, he's just doing an improv bit now. But by then, you know, in a good show, you've built up enough trust. They go with that, and then there's a massive payoff at the end. Yeah. And so that's my favorite place to go where they're like, where is this going? Now, right. he, now he's doing some kind yeah. of weird performance. Well, because then you, one of the things, mistakes that I used to make and still make, but less so that you see magicians making all the time, is telling the audience too much. Yeah. Classic show opening. Hey, everybody, you know, my name's so-and-so. Tonight's going to be our comedy and magic. You know, we're going to do some things. And here's a now. Hi, what's your name? Pick a card. Yeah. Versus just walking out. What's your name? Choose a card. Because now there's mystery. You know, give them, give them, like Williamson talks about again. Love that guy, clearly. Yeah. But, like, give them 70 to 80% and force them to figure out the last 20%. Because if you don't leave them anything to figure out, they can just sit back. They're passive. Passive. They're just, you're broadcasting at them. Yeah. Whereas if they have to literally and figuratively lean forward and figure out, so what's he doing? He's having to pick a card. Okay, why? What's, ha- what's going on? And if they care and have to think, they're so much more engaged because they're doing some work as well. Yeah. You know, just an, getting that right amount is difficult. You know, sure. too much, it's just annoying. Like, what's going on? I don't know. Yeah. It, then it becomes a puzzle instead yeah. of And making it's damn sure it's a payoff. Yeah. You know, that it goes somewhere worthwhile for them. That yeah. rewards their engagement rather than dismisses it. It's, it's tricky. Yeah. It's not easy. Hmm. All right, so getting out of Melbourne, how did that happen? <laughs> so there were, there were two big leaps. I, I went to university, got the magic in first year. Yeah. So it was a five-year degree. Yeah. Uh, I took a year off in the middle of it uh, for reasons, long story, not really relevant. So after six years... What was it? Was uh, it a girl? It actually was partly a girl. Uh, so fourth year, right, what the hell? Uh, fourth year university was a bad year. Uh, it began with a with a major breakup Been and there. then went downhill from there. Right on. Uh, it was just a horrible, 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 shitty, terrible year. And I just because I was in Australia and the UK, it's really common to take a, a gap year, quote unquote. Very white privilege concept. Yeah. Very. You know, back then I was oblivious to everything, but uh, taking a year off to go and travel and see the world and explore and get some context about you know the world, the world condition. And I hadn't done that out of uh, high school. So I didn't really, I don't know, I just didn't. Because you were a nerd. Yeah, pretty much. I was like, I don't know know what I'm doing. School. I'm going to go to school. Go go to university now. Yeah. That's the thing. And so I was was like at the younger end of my year. So I'm like, you know what? I've got a year kind of in the can based on my societal expectations at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Again, stuff that I wasn't thinking about back then, but, you know, now in hindsight. And uh, so I went to London. My my dad's Australian. My mom's English. So I had both passports. So I could easily, you know, again. Lucky me. Uh, so I could go to the UK. Had uh, relatives there, so it was an easy spot. 
And in the UK, I kind of basically starved for a year. I lived pretty much on the poverty line, like in a really crappy apartment, just like trying, you know, experiencing the real world, you know, scraping by, doing like an IT tech support job. Yeah. And, but doing magic for the first time semi-professionally. And I remember in London, there was this moment where, you know, I was doing, I, I hate walk around magic. Yeah. I hate it with an Why? intense passion. Because you are... A you, professional interrupter? Pretty much. Okay. But also you are a professional interruptee. Because you're both. Ooh, yes. Both cases yeah. Because you, you know, you pour your heart and your soul and blood and sweat and tears, literally all three, into crafting these pieces of art, you know, not to get all wanky about it, but, you know, still. Yeah. Whether high art or low art, just pieces of amazing work. Yeah. That you then perform and get interrupted by the canapes, which are rightfully more important than you at that point. Yeah. And like, how how is that enjoyable? <laughs> it's just like, and forget like, I can take my own ego out of it sure. and just go this this trick that is you know my work based on hundreds of other people's work over decades and centuries. There's this miracle, this absolute literal life changing miracle of a piece of performance art that will not be appreciated by because many of breadsticks. Yeah, because of breadsticks. <laughs> and that's right. And when they notice their friend, oh sorry, I have to go see my friend now. Yeah, and you know what? They're right. They are yeah, right. They are right. They, you are the least important thing in that room, and you shouldn't be. You know, you shouldn't be in that room. You know, but I mean, there are ways to get around it. I now do when I do walk around gigs because I, you know, still right now need the income from them. Uh, yeah. I take a table, mm-hmm. and I basically do ribbon spread turnovers until someone notices, because then people opt in. Yeah. Like I hate the other thing I hate about the conventional walk around is that it's, many people are going to enjoy it and be happy to see you go. Oh yeah, magic! Cool. This was great. Thank yeah. you. But you are 100% guaranteed to make someone's evening worse. Yeah. Even only very slightly. Like when I'm, I, I used to work for a Fortune 500 company. I was a business analyst for five years for Accenture, huge global company. And I went to events that had magicians or had other walk around performers or whatever. And I remember how, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm very much not, net, not a natural extrovert. Yeah. And I remember it was awkward for me to politely say I'd rather Decline. just continue my conversation. Like yeah. I don't want to be interrupted right now. They're like, hey, I'm like, I, uh, uh, and it made my evening not just not like it was a massive trauma to deal with, but I'm like, I'd rather not even have to refuse this. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, don't spam me and make me click unsubscribe from your email. Just don't send me the damn email in the first place unless I sign up for your mailing list. Yeah. Whereas with the table and the ribbon spreads, you're now doing opt-in magic rather than opt-out magic. Yeah. Like it's less rapey. It is. You know? Yeah. That's what, uh, that's what Mike Pichotta does when he does yeah. these types of games. Smart guy. <laughs> and so, but in, so in London, I was doing walk around gigs and I hadn't figured all this out yet. I just knew it was really awkward, but it was the kind of work that was readily available. And, you know, it's still true in most cities. And, and I was, you know, I was still, I've been imagining four years. That's very new. That's so little time. And I was really, uh, you know, not comfortable and confident about my skills. And, yeah. and I was sort of working on this routine that was kind of an ambitious card with a bunch of color changes. It was sort of basically the best stuff I knew how to do put into one short routine. Yeah. And there was one night working a, a weekly walk around gig at a pub, and oh God, weekly walk around gigs just oh, it's the, the horror, <laughs> the, the, the pain that you go through. You gotta, you gotta get beat down I, by life, right? I deeply envy people who actually enjoy walk around. Yeah. Because if I enjoyed walk around, life would be rosy. Because there's infinite walk around work available. And I know people who love that and just thrive in that, the natural extroverts who are like, hey, whoa, yeah, life at the party, bam. Oh man, that'd be great. Yeah. You know? I mean, heck, like I, I enjoy like repairing a broken spreadsheet in Excel. I find that interesting, fun, intellectual challenge. You know, everyone's got their own thing. Yeah. That was why my job kind of worked out. 
But there was one night where I approached the table and my, my go-to opening line at that point, because that, you know, every, you know. You gotta have one. What's your opening line? What's your opening? You know, yep. the amount of magic publication space over the years dedicated to that. How do you introduce a walk-around set? Yeah. Uh, was, uh, hey, my name's Simon. Uh, I'm here to show you the official card trick. Mm-hmm. You know, imply authority, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, fine. And I, there was one night where I'd been practicing a lot. And there was a table that was like, eh. I could see that they were hesitant, you know, I was like, eh. and I spontaneously said, trust me, it's, it's worth your while. Yeah. And for the first time ever in my life, I meant that. And yeah. I knew that if they gave it two minutes, it would be worth their while because I'd hit that level of confidence with my stuff. I knew it was good. And that was huge. Yeah. You know, I'd never had that before. And that was like, that went a long way. So I went to London, uh, Experienced a whole bunch of stuff, all kinds of crazy things. Came like back what? to Melbourne and finished it. No, like what? That. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just honestly, a lot of it just living on the poverty line. Yeah. Like having to struggle to pay rent. And like London's, I think, the second most expensive city in the world after Tokyo, I think. Okay. Last time I checked. Uh, like meeting friends, getting to know people. In London, I got into improv. Yeah. That was actually huge. I met, went to the London Society of Magicians, a magic club, like, let's check it out. Yeah met a guy called Tom who was the artistic director of a really good improv company. Was what was his name? Tom Selinsky. Oh, hey, Tom. Oh, so his name is Tom. Yeah. You said it was called Tom. I oh, right. Called Tom. Named Tom. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, hey, giving, Tom, you're I'm just giving you shit. Uh, right, Tom, Tom Selinsky and Deborah Francis White. Yeah. Uh, and they ran a group called the Spontaneity Shop and mm-hmm. Tom was a magic enthusiast. Uh, I went to one of their shows. Amazing show. One, again, one of the best things I've ever seen on a stage because it was, it was just, they specialized in long form improv. Great. Which is my favorite form. Because mm-hmm. then you have to build and craft the character and the plot rather than just going for the gag, which is still great. But my God, it's one of those things that doesn't sound possible until you see that that can be done yeah. as an art form. And uh, the show is incredible. And long story short, uh, Tom ended up, because I was more experienced in magic than he was, I ended up giving him like free magic tuition and he enrolled me in all their beginner improv workshops for free. So I spent this year in London, along with everything else, like doing all these improv workshops. Yeah. And it was one of the best, most valuable things, both as a performer and a human being that I ever did. Because, again, good improv, like good anything, like again, taps into the, the human condition. Like yeah. What, what do we care about? What are, what are the journeys and experiences we have as people? And just things like understanding status relationships and understanding audience engagement and narrative structure and just all these things that... You know, things like, you know, the hero's journey as a, as a plot structure, archetype mm-hmm. work because that mirrors our experience in life. Yeah. You know, like all things like that that were new to me at the time. And to this day, I think about, you know, the lessons I learned back in, in improv class in London. Yeah. How did that, how did that change your approach to life just in general? Uh, what, what, I mean, one example was, because I was, you know, I was not a naturally socially intuitive person. I'm still not. Like most of it I kind of learned by trial and error and like figuring out, oh, this means that, okay, these are the human social conventions that we have to arbitrarily follow. <laughs> and improv, again, plays a lot of those. Like, yeah. About, and one of the most fascinating things was the study of status relationships. Okay. Uh, on stage that applies to offstage, right? It works on stage because it's real offstage. And that in any given moment, one of the many dynamics between people in a scene is, is the status relationship. Who is higher or lower status? You know, who's in charge? Yeah. Who's, excuse me, who's not? And the different ways you can use to signify and communicate and perceive status. And one of them, for example, is to appear higher status 
uh, move your head less mm -hmm. and just fidget less. The less you move, that raises your perceived status. So if I talk with a very still head and a very focused gaze, you see much more higher status than if you start moving your head around. And, you know, again, this doesn't come through on audio, but yeah. you know, if you think about it, you yeah. can see it. And the fact that, for example, a sudden shift in status manifests as funny. Like the classic thing, person walking along, average status, slips on a banana peel, low status. Yeah. Sudden rapid drop in status, hilarious. Yeah. And the higher their initial status, the, the bigger the drop, the, the bigger the lot. Yeah. So if you know, someone, a very well-dressed, you know, conceited banker walking along sits on a banana peel, that's much funnier because it's a much bigger drop in status. Yeah. And things like that, just so how to communicate status immediately bled into just the way I moved and thought and conducted myself and interacted with people. Yeah. You know, in day-to-day -day life, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's like in line at the bank or on a date or, you know, all these different things, it was this revelation. Well, it's a, it's a nice little bit of social engineering for you to first understand the other person's status yeah. and then imagine what status they want you to be. Yeah. And, and whether then, you want to match that or subvert that, yeah. depending on what, you know, and all these how you want to be yeah. perceived. And one of the things that I loved was something Deborah always talked about in the classes about the idea of, of you can be the, the happy, benevolent, high status. Yeah. Right? You can be the person who's the high status, but nice about it. You know, yeah. You're there to give everyone a good time and make everyone happy. And that's, you know, the way you want to, again, not being insufferable. You know, yeah, like exactly. Cool person. Who, yeah. So sort of taking the high status and then using it for good rather than evil. You know, again, a lot of people get that wrong. They think, I want to be the high status so I can be a dick. And, like, yeah. keep people down and... You know, all that, all that bullshit that, you know, people like ways to kind of lower people's status around you so that you're the alpha and all that crap. You know, yeah. It's just, well, there's this new, I mean, and I'm just ripping this from mm. a different podcast, but, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like being the alpha by means of your beta-ness, basically. Which is Interesting. Like, which is like, uh, you know, somebody hits you, you're in a car crash, right? Yeah. And... They're at fault, but you're super chill about the whole thing. Ah, uh, yeah. So, like, you're not being aggressive alpha. You're being, yeah. like, very beta. Super chill. And just being yeah. very... And thus running the situation by your lack of attempt to do so. Yeah. Like, um, I, I actually... <laughs> before I got my new car, uh, I was in my first ever accident. <clears throat> and I broadsided somebody. I was pulling out of a parking lot. I was going maybe five miles an hour. And yeah. so our cars just kind of... <laughs> it was very... It was, yeah, he just, yeah, yeah, he just like kind of, the nose of my car just scraped oh, the yeah. side of his basically. But he pulled into the parking lot and I got out and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, you know, this is my fault, blah, blah, blah. I just owned up to it immediately. Yeah. And then just started getting to know him and like yeah. calming him down. And he, we were like laughing and high-fiving by the time it was yeah. And it's just one of those things where like if you can keep a level head, yeah. you can be also, the person in charge. Yeah, and acknowledge your own faults yeah. because we all have them yeah. at all times, you know. And that can be actually very disarming when you acknowledge. Like I remember there was a situation in back in Melbourne. I was coming to the U.S. because where else would I go because I love it here so much. Like yeah. I used to use all my annual leave every year at my corporate job to come here to L.A. basically. Wow. Like, so, I, you know, you get four weeks a year as normal in Australia. Hey, America, what's up? And... So I would usually use that sort of twice a year. You were so, still coming uh, here, though, so... Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I know, all, all the glory and all the horror. It's, it's funny being here as a foreigner. There are so many things that are so much better and so much worse, depending on, you know... I know, it's it's quite a mixed bag. It's anyway, intense. so go ahead. So I was... Wait, where were we? Uh, oh, yeah, I was coming here, and I realized I had let my passport expire. 
and I was leaving in like two days. There's mm. not enough time yeah. you know, to get the passport renewed. And it was just, you know, oh, you know, damn it. Figured I'd go to the passport office and, you know, which was a fair epic trek, like you know, figuring out how to make an appointment, how to get there. Sure. Everything, um, you know, I had other things to be doing. This is all very, you know, pan absolute panic stations now. And went there and I'm like, at least let's go and see if I can, you know, see yeah. if I can do something. And I went there and, the, you know, got filtered and then like went through the process and they were like, yes, I'm applying for an emergency passport. Uh, you know, do you have any medical reason? No, I don't, you know, I don't. And I remember at one point it finally, after hours of this, it got escalated to the supervisor and mm -hmm. came over. And the sort of the desk receptionist was like, yeah, here's his forms, here's what this, you know, and she looked, the supervisor looks at the form, looks at me and sort of, you know, she's clearly very busy, has a lot going on. Yeah. And she's looking, looks at it and goes to me and says, you, you, like, you understand we have absolutely no obligation to, you know, do this. And I'm just like, yeah, I know, you know, I know. I just thought, figured I should at least try and come here and take the chance that maybe there was something that could happen, but, you know. I understand. Yeah, completely, yeah, absolutely. You know, I know, I'm just taking it. She was like, eh, all right, fine, do it. Yeah. You know, I'm certain that if I displayed any sense of entitlement at that moment. She would have shut you down. Go F yourself. Yeah. yeah. And again, just, yeah, having that, the humility to acknowledge the reality of the situation. It's yeah. amazing how many people don't get that. Yeah. You know, and it's, in a way, ironically, it works out well because that kind of accepting self-awareness is often very disarming mm -hmm. because so people do it, so people don't accept it. You know, like, I'm sure the guy didn't expect that reaction with the car. Yeah. You know, which is probably why it went really well. Yeah, it went very well. Yeah. <laughs> so he was a Lyft driver. He had two passengers with him. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it really could have been bad, but, you know. Yeah. It was easy. Where were we? We were somewhere. It's about Melbourne job. Something yeah, you were in London doing improv. Doing improv, came here. We were talking about status change. Status change, Melbourne. Went to London. Yeah, came yeah. back to Melbourne. Yeah. Came back to finish the final year of my degree, which yeah. was so hard to do because I started to get, like, I actually got a few decent Christmas gigs in London. Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, oh my God, money. You know, this is more money than I ever made in my life before. You know, yeah. this is a student. You know, I'd been yeah, working yeah. like part time in a bookshop and things like that. And so it was so hard to come back and focus on another final, very intense year of university. But I did it, and I got my degrees, and um, and then sort of like doing magic professionally. That's interesting. But I just did not feel confident I could do it at that yeah. stage. It's my full time thing, particularly in Australia, that has sure. a much smaller market than London has a huge magic market. And so I came back and just got got kind of a graduate. You know, went through the graduate corporate recruitment beauty parade, and ended up with this job as a you know, intern business analyst at a big company, which is kind of whatever I did, if you, if you had the marks, which I did. So I thought I should at least try this. You know, the paycheck will be good and I might enjoy it. It might not suck. And did that for the next five years while doing magic on the side. So magic was like just like a part-time, you know, part-time pro hobby level. Yeah. But, just, but that was really where my passion was. Like the yeah. job was interesting and I learned a lot. And I'm still very glad I spent that time at it because the things I learned about, you know, business and life and everything else were amazingly useful. Particularly now doing corporate entertainment. Like, I know their world. I've walked yeah, across yeah. them. Yeah. Like, gorillas in the mist. You know, yeah. I, I know their ways. <laughs> and, and magic just slowly grew and grew. And that was around about the time, like, you know, I entered a couple of competitions and, like, won a couple of them. And I was like, oh, oh, my God. You know, I didn't expect that would ever happen. And that gave me some more confidence and, you know, slowly kept building. And then um, I took uh, three months of unpaid leave to enter FISM in 2009. That was a whole thing, you know, and then that worked out. And then, 
And fast forward like after five years of the company, finally quit to go full time magic, which was terrifying. Yeah, absolutely I can terrifying. And I, I originally only meant to stay there for two or three years to get the experience and try it out, but stayed out of you know fear and complacency and addiction to the paycheck. You know, yes. How much were you making? Um, when I quit, I was just about to hit 100k Australian, which at the time was about 100k US. Now it's more like 80k US. Sure. But it was the kind of job where as long as you don't suck, you're going to kind of get a 5 to 10% pay rise a year forever. That sort of thing where you just keep going higher through the company until, you know, you make partner and all that jazz. And, yeah. You know, so it was like very tricky to walk away from that. Yeah. You know, still is sometimes. I still wince occasionally. Sure. Still don't regret it at all. Like, you know, if, I know if I was still there, I would just, I would just be lusting after this life. You know, yeah. Lusting after the freedom and the possibility and the excitement and the self-expression of what I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah, so I was doing that and quit, and it was, you know, obviously quitting that was too. And I knew for a few years that I was probably going to take the leap, <laughs> and I was starting to kind of try and lay the groundwork. <laughs> uh, that yeah, sounds like my last breakup. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I, I mean, mainly in terms of saving money. Yeah. Like I was, you know, I was earning a good salary, but sure. I wasn't living like it. I yeah. was living very frugally and just banking cash because I'm like, I might need this cash depending yeah. on how this goes. Yeah. And oh my God, I did, you know, heinously underestimated how, not how hard it would be, but the ways in which it would be hard to be a professional magician. You know, like what? Because it's, you yeah. know, people listening to this may have yeah, no idea. Basically the biggest thing that I didn't understand and it was either no one told me or... I didn't know how to hear it. You know, it's often both. Sure. I'm sure it was both. Was the level to which, unless you are very lucky, and this is the thing that I'm always wary of giving advice or when people give advice because advice is so subjective to your individual situation. Yeah. So the advice that I would give is so subjective, it's the advice I wish I'd been given, which is so different to the advice someone else might need. Oh, yeah, no, this yeah. is not advice to everyone yeah. listening. This is advice to yeah, someone some who use, can use it. completely irrelevant. Exactly. The thing that I underestimated was uh, unless you're lucky in that you have an incredibly marketable act and you get discovered or picked up by an agent or something and end up on a tour or a circuit, which happens to some people, and God damn, I envy those people, uh, just how much of your job is sales, marketing, and client relationship management. That is actually like 80% of your job as a pro magician. And I was completely oblivious to that. Yeah. It's not like I'm not completely oblivious. I knew that, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But I didn't realize just how much that was a necessity to actually get work and also learning how to negotiate. But yeah, sales, marketing, customer relationship management, which are all weaknesses of mine. They're all things I'm not naturally gifted at. And I am working very hard to upskill at, you know, to this day. Yeah. Probably for a long time yet. And it's... And it's funny, it's frustrating sometimes how, and I don't mean, and when I say naive, I don't mean that as a judgment. Like all of us are naive about most things. Yeah. Right? I'm naive about most things than what we all are. Sure. Just sort of friends and family and people I know, how naive they are about like, well, can't you get a manager? No, no, you can't. Like maybe you can if you're really lucky, you know, yeah. or get a friend to manage you who won't really know how to do it very well. Yeah. You know, no, it is, there is not an easy path unless you're lucky. Yeah. And given that, being lucky is not a good plan to rely on. You've got to learn to do it yourself. You know, the running, the cruel thing is like, you know, there are magicians with managers, but they normally got them because they were already doing well enough 
to attract that. Yeah. So unless you bootstrap your way up to that point on your own, that's probably that's less likely to happen. Might happen, you know. Yeah. Or you're lucky to have like a parent or a friend or a partner who is savvy at those things who helps you out in that capacity. You yeah. Know, which I have sadly not been. And so it's been a much, much harder road in that regard than I ever imagined it would be. Sure. You know. So that's the biggest thing. And like and I sort of before quitting, I like made sure I had good business cards and I worked on my website and had everything ready. But yeah, I didn't realize how much I would have to be like proactive in sales and marketing. And also just the other big thing, oh man, that I never realized back then that took me years to figure out is unless you like walk around, close up ain't going to take you anywhere. Again, unless you're lucky. Yeah. The one of the rare gift of you. Sure. Because you know? there is just not... There are not the big budgets for that. There is a lot of low-paid close-up work available. But again, at that point, if you're doing work you don't enjoy, which is walk around for me. Yeah. And so for the last three years, I have actually almost completely pivoted to work exclusively on stand-up and stage magic. Because doing like stand-up and stage presentations, keynotes, lectures, events, shows, you know, I've now actually just recently, uh, thanks to a friend and some contacts, did my first ever cruise ship gig. I really liked that was great and I enjoyed that like I like doing a formal show formal close-up show absolute favorite thing because there's nothing more powerful than close-up magic yeah but good luck making a career doing that it's possible the gift of few managed to make it happen you know if you build there's people in Germany like a bunch of guys who built their own close-up theaters and are actually doing really well with it you know I'm not yet at the point where I think I can do that and even then I like the versatility and the flexibility of being able to travel to perform and perform yeah. in different places at different events and you know, it's sort of the end game for me for the moment is kind of getting into that corporate entertainment slash speaking market that I can do very well because I know them and I, you know, have the insights that are relevant to that. Mm-hmm. But then how to sell a market and get those gigs, oh my God, that's a nightmare. It's so hard. <laughs> so hard. It happens occasionally. Like, yeah. I've, I've done gigs where I'm like, if I could get gigs like this semi, even semi-regularly, we'd, life would be rosy. But actually making that happen is unbelievably hard if you are not a natural salesman, schmoozer, networker, which I am definitely not yeah. a natural at those things. It's, yeah. That, that was the big thing that, you know, I wish I'd known. And honestly, if I'd known that, I don't know if it would have changed much. I think I just would have started taking sales classes earlier, mm-hmm. naturally. And the thing is, I didn't want to believe that as well. I think even if I'd been told that back then, I wouldn't have listened. I'd been, ah, there's got to be another way. That's, a, yeah, that's it too distasteful. It takes the truth. purity away. That's too distasteful a truth to accept. Yeah. I, you know, again, picking the beautiful, the painful truth. Because the painful truth is going to get you get you places. Yeah. The beautiful lie will just make you waste time. Yeah. You're more prepared with the truth. Yeah. yeah. Even if it hurts, you know. Unfortunately. Um, let's talk about puzzles and impossible objects. Oh, boy. Do you want some water or something? Please. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Let's just... Just Later. talk. Just, Just say talk. things. Say things. Um, did you words. mention coffee earlier as well? Do you want a coffee? I think about that. Water and coffee. I will make a coffee while we are talking. I like it. So just cool. Just Can the mic pick you up from here? Uh, yeah. It's probably. good. It's probably adding like depth and three D, three Dness to the experience. I'm gonna take the bag off. Oh, that makes sense. And I'm gonna switch this into broad ambient mode. So you get a clunk. Yeah. Here we go. Nice. So, so yeah, just tell me about puzzles and shit. So impossible objects. Impossible objects are really my thing. Puzzles are cool, but they're I'm not like a puzzle head. No. I'm like, you know, I enjoy a puzzle. You know, puzzles are cool. I'm into that. Depends certain types of puzzles. It's actually funny that 
again, that just deep subjectivity of what different people enjoy and what people are into. Yeah. And like, for example, I hate puzzles that are, I think there was like insight puzzles where there's kind of a leap of insight and you figure out, oh, I've got it now. Because I just find them frustrating. I like things like Sudoku where you can incrementally chip away at it. Like I like that flow state, you know, the small amounts of quick feedback. Yeah. That you can make us, you can feel the progress you're making through the puzzle. Yeah. That's why things like room escapes are great because you're, yeah. you're progressing, you're incrementally working through or it. Or 49 boxes. Love 49 boxes. Which is the uh, greatest thing in the whole world. So now. great. Yeah. So. Except um, for like free healthcare and utopia and things like that. Yeah, world peace. Well, this we don't have that. Yeah, exactly. We got it. Yeah. We're yeah. speaking hyperbolic. That's like that old that old joke, like what's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Genocide. Genocide, yeah. yeah. Um but Never jokes. Yeah, that's what I like about the Danlock so much. Oh that yeah. that's my favorite puzzle of all yeah. time. And I think anybody that's interacted with it would probably yeah. feel similar Yeah. Well, if they, well, they wouldn't, because some people aren't into that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's what you always realize. And that's like that's actually one of the sort of the biggest ongoing life lessons I keep learning more deeply about just how absolutely subjective the human condition is. You know, one person's nirvana is another's dystopia. Yeah. You know what you're. I mean, I still remember. For me, it was I read Lord, the Lord of the Rings trilogy way back in in uh, secondary school, high school. Were you a big Tolkien fan? No, not at all. I thought it sucked. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Okay. Well, well rather it was, it was simultaneous. Like, I thought it was a great story, bogged down with page after page of Elvish history. Oh my God, Tolkien, could you shut up about the Elvish history <laughs> yeah. and get on with the ring rates and the quest and the cool stuff? Yeah. And, and so that frustrated me. And, and like most people at the time, I was like, yeah, man, what's wrong with people who like this? Yeah. Which is naive, you know, because... Yes. Some people, that was why they loved the books, because they really got into the Elvish history, and then the Tom Bombadil songs and poems, I just flicked through, I'm just like, nope, next, get the other poem. Didn't yeah. even bother reading them. Yeah, yeah. And, and so when the movies came out, I loved them, because it was all the stuff I liked without the stuff I, I couldn't stand. Yeah. But then people were like, no, all the stuff we loved is gone now. And what made me really appreciate that was years later when I read a book called Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. What's it called? Cryptonomicon. Okay. Like Necronomicon, but yeah, crypto, yeah. yeah. Book of cryptography. And shout out to the Neil Stevenson fans and the listeners. Uh, and Cryptonomicon is probably my favorite book I have ever read in my life. Wow, that's... So it's a big call, because I don't do favorites. Hey, pick one favorite, you know? Yeah. And I don't have a favorite movie or a favorite food, but I have a favorite book, and it's Crypto-Frickonomicon, because the sheer visceral joy I experienced reading that book is, you know, when you talked about like, that, that, that physical feeling you got watching the, the, the coin guy, whose yeah. name I forget, that was like me reading Cryptonomicon, just, oh my God, it was just physical joy in my entire body at how much I was grinning just reading this book because, you know, and what I loved about Cryptonomicon was the same stuff I hated about Lord of the Rings because what I love the most is he goes off on all these tangents that are not really central to the plot, but like there'll be a scene where a character starts doing something on his laptop, but then Neil sends Stevenson, the author, goes off on this kind of tangent about what's really happening in that scene at a, at a level of detail which many friends who read the book got bored with and wanted to move on with. Yeah. And so 
it was the exact inverse of Lord of the Rings. I loved all the tangential stuff. Many people hated it and thought it was boring and irrelevant. Yeah. And that was when I really, that was the real moment for me where I'm like, oh, right, we're just, people are into different stuff and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, unless that stuff is like, you know, rape and murder, you know, and screwing other people, you know, it's just, your know, taste is different. And so that was a real kind of like, a real like moment of kind of intellectual tolerance for me of going, oh, people like different stuff. That's yeah. okay, you know. These things aren't necessarily bad. And it comes back to you not necessarily, you can't blame yourself for mm. people in your audience not enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, up to a certain point. Yeah, you can still you do can. a better job. You can still shift that bell curve, right? You can still make it more appealing. Yeah. And more appealing to the people who are receptive to it. You know? <laughs> but the, and this, but the, the flip side of that is what I think of as the chocolate scale. The which chocolate is the scale. chocolate scale. This is this is a Simon Cornell theory. Okay, pause. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay, tell me about the chocolate scale. So the, cho the chocolate scale. Um, and this is sort of just a a metaphor for something that Basically, sort of your level of experience or your experience or mastery or connoisseurship in a given field. Like, and because chocolate's a pretty relatable concept to everybody. So imagine if you meet someone who's never tasted chocolate before. Yeah. Had never experienced it. And they try a piece of really crappy cooking chocolate. You know, really basic chocolate. They're going to go, oh my God, this stuff is amazing. Because they've never tasted chocolate. Yeah. You know, it's wow, holy crap, and they'll go, oh my god, guys, have you tried this chocolate stuff? It's incredible, and they'll give you some cooking chocolate, and you'll go, ugh, this is shit, this yeah. is crappy cooking chocolate, because you're more experienced with the feel of chocolate. And then they try Cadbury chocolate. The field of context. Yeah, or Hershey's or whatever, and they go, oh my oh god, okay, I get it now, this is the good stuff. This is, compared to crappy cooking chocolate, you know. It's life-changing. It's life-changing, oh my god, now I get what good chocolate is. And then they try like Ghiardelli or Lint or whatever, and they go, oh, okay, okay, get it. This is, wow, this is something else. But then they haven't tasted like handmade Belgian stuff, you know, that's really actually amazing. But then they, even then, they haven't tasted, you know, there's, a, you go up the hierarchy of chocolate quality. Yeah. And there's a subjectivity to a degree. Some people just really like Hershey's because, you know, whatever. Because it's delicious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, each to their own. Yeah. But, and the same with, you know, whether it's magical literature or whatever, you have the personal taste factor. You know, some people just don't really like chocolate, and that's okay. Yeah. But there's also the fact that some people, things can be objectively better, and people just don't know that. They just don't have enough experience to contextualize that. Or what makes me mad is that things can be objectively better, and people go, no, it's only subjective. Yeah. That's what makes me mad. Yeah. Anyway, and, and that sort of frustrates me. And one of the big examples of that is things like a lot of mainstream blockbuster movies right now. Take like I went and saw, you know, I've seen like saw Doctor Strange the other day. There's a lot of you know a lot of the superhero movies. And the thing about those is they do very well. They re they reviewed very well. There is a lot to like about them. What frustrates me about them is they could a lot of them annoy me because I care about you know character and plot development and I don't try to notice plot holes, but I do. I just I you know. It's the kind of brain I've got. In many ways, I wish I didn't. Yeah. And what frustrates me is they could be written better in a way that would not make them worse for anyone, but would make them better for some... Again, it would shift their bell curve higher. You know, if they just took out a few of the plot holes, the movie would still have everything that everyone else liked, but also I would like it more, and people like me would like it more. 
You know, it could just be better. Yeah, no there's no trade off. Yeah, without making trade offs. See, so if there's trade offs, okay, fine. You pick which way you want to optimize for. <laughs> no, you're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. And so that, and so I mean, you know, again, this is still trying to figure out that unified theory of everything. You know, like any principle you make, there's always exceptions to it because you know there's so many different concepts and theories you have to take into account. Yeah. And figure so, stuff out. So you try and you know you try and make stuff better. Yeah. And also make it play to whoever will play to. And yeah. I don't even know. Well, that's that's we got started on this because we were talking about our differences and. Puzzles and how we like yeah. puzzles and what kind oh, of Oh yeah, puzzles. impossible objects, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, so puzzles are great. Not massively my thing, but impossible objects, holy crap, couldn't be more my thing. Uh, I, so well, it makes one. sense. I mean, we're yeah. talking about you bleeding right? edges. Yeah, exactly. That's there. It's, it's an artifact from beyond the edge. Yeah. You know, and it's and so when so for those who know impossible objects, uh, technically you should call them quasi-impossible objects. So things that look like they shouldn't be able to exist. But that clearly do exist. So right away you've got that same cognitive dissonance that a magic trick has, in that it looks like something impossible happened. It can't have happened, but you saw it happen. Whoa, you know, it's a you experience a moment of astonishment. And so an impossible object is that moment of astonishment. Uh, do you have a whole milk and or cream? Yeah. Either way, it's fine. And one sugar if you've got it. Yeah, whatever. Go okay. <laughs> the copy scale. And so an impossible object is that moment of astonishment kind of crystallized and frozen in a way that lingers. And a magic trick usually happens in a moment. It's an instant that it's gone. You just yeah. have a memory. And I still remember when um, there was an episode of The X-Files, uh, season five, I remember, I forget what episode, called Dreamland, where this weird, like, you know, like Area 51 experiment goes wrong and all this, like, weird like spatial reality warping stuff happens and Mulder and, and a man in black swap bodies and it was one of the weirder episodes. Okay. And all these like objects fuse through each other and just, just reality ripples weirdly and everything gets kind of messed up. And at the end of the two part of spoiler alert, you know, it's at least a decade old, I think the statute of limitations has passed. And yeah, you're good. The X-Files. Uh, they managed to rectify everything by kind of rewinding time with the way this weird tachyon drive thing works. Except, and which means that everyone's memory of it goes. So it's this kind of period of victory that they fixed everything, but Mulder had seen the true, like the weird stuff that was happening in Area 51. Yeah. But now he was going to lose the memory of that yeah. by rewinding it all. So it's this really intense period of victory. But then as they rewound everything, a few weird, you realize later, a few weird little artifacts were left unchanged. Yeah. And Scully finds in her pocket two coins, like fused through each other, like at the molecular level, not yeah. like welder, but like in an impossible way with no memory of where this came from. And there was just something so compelling to me about that moment. This idea of discovering an object with no knowledge of how this thing came into existence, but that kind of proves that something weird beyond the understanding of reality had, had happened in some way. Yeah. And to me that was, again, as a kid who looked for the edges of reality and beyond, like that was so oh, very compelling, yeah. Ah, oh, so compelling. And when I started reading about, like, you know, Harry Eng and the Eng bottles and Ian Rowland and Angus Lavery's impossible cards and all the other impossible objects and saw Bob Ross Link's pipe elbows and these things, that was, oh, you know, the nearest thing in reality to this experience that yeah. I had. That's kind of, you know, ten related to magic, but still its own like, little field. And I was obsessed with these things. There was another one in, um, in uh, it was a Tintin comic. Mm -hmm. You guys had them over here. Yeah. Flight 714. Similar thing at the end, they 
they meet these aliens and then they get their memories wiped. But then this uh, this object, like just a piece of metal made of like an alloy that doesn't doesn't exist on Earth, Professor Calculus finds in his pocket, like similar trope. And he like they don't know where this came from, but there there is proof, physical, tangible proof that more is going on with reality than they realized. And like, ah, yeah. oh, so compelling. Yeah. And so impossible objects, just as soon as I discovered them, were just absolute fascination. And since then and because me, I want to know the truth. I want the answers. Like, mystery is great, yeah. but I don't like the needless preservation of mystery. There's always going to be more mystery. There's always going to be a new edge of reality to explore. Yeah. And so I was trying to figure out how they were done. But one of the things I love about them is, as we know, there are almost no magic secrets. Yeah. You know, 20 bucks and Google, and you can buy any book or any DVD and find out how pretty much any magic trick is done. Yeah. You know, pretty much. Few exceptions, but barely. sure. Whereas impossible objects, even the people who make them don't talk to each other about the methods. Yeah, mostly, and I love that. Like it's, it feels like the last truly secret art form, and it's this real profound mystery to behind these things. And so, and the ethos tends to be you can only discover how they're made by making one yourself. Yeah, because you can theorize how they're made sometimes. Like some of them, you just have no idea. But until you, and my experience has been, is until you sit down and make it, you will then discover why your theory is wrong that you couldn't have known until you actually try it. Yeah. And that's that big lesson about life is until you actually go there and sit down and get your hands dirty, you don't really know what you're dealing with. And you learn so many things by actually sitting down and experimenting. And that was really what Harry M was about. Like, to, you know, his thing to think. Mm -hmm. There's a guy, um, Barry Smith in Australia, in, like, unexpected, I never expect, like, really brilliant stuff to come out of Australia. It's, it's rare. It happens occasionally. You know? yeah. Like Australian cinema, every now and then we crank out something fantastic. But, yeah. you know, it's a small country with a smaller population. It's sure. statistically less bleeding-edge stuff. Yeah. Um, but this guy, Barry, I love... Hey, shout out to Barry if you're listening. The, he liked Harry's concept of think, was always Harry Ng's catchphrase. Barry's was... Tr he wanted to go to try. Mm -hmm. I just think try. Actually try. Like sit down yeah. and have an attempt because... You will learn so much, and that's when I work on magic, magic props, or impossible objects. Until I, I don't even assume I know anything until I sit down and like try poking the thing with the thing and try this out. And the big thing I learn is even if you are certain it's not going to work, try it anyway. Yeah. Because one percent of the time you'll be wrong and it does work. Yeah. You're like, Whoa! I never thought that would work. Yeah. But even if you're right and it doesn't work, seeing the exact way in which it doesn't work still gives you more information. Yes. You go, oh, it, it doesn't work by less than I thought it wouldn't work. Yeah. Interesting. Or for that, a different reason. I yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, or yeah, a whole different thing. Yeah. And that's, that's something that Homer Lewak said on his episode mm -hmm. is that he, you know, he, he would always not do things and now he started doing things even though he thinks they mm -hmm. won't work and he goes, well, most of the time I'm not wrong, but like yeah. I'm, t I'm educated. You learned something. Yeah. yeah. Something you didn't expect. Yeah. Smart guy that Homer. Turns yeah. out. Turns out. Yeah, trying things that you know won't work to you know, learn from the failure yeah. because you get useful data. And yeah. that was something that's so counterintuitive. Like you, that's easy to say. And I know a lot of people listening be like, what? No, that sounds dumb. That can't be right. Yeah. But you know, when you actually try it, yeah. you, know, you always learn something. And it gets you incrementally closer to, if there is a way, finding that way. And that's that thing. You just never know. There might just so be the Edison way. quote. Yeah. Which one? Oh, the, like the thousand ways that didn't work. Yeah. The light bulb. Yeah. yeah. You know I mean? I found lots of what yeah, eliminated lots of ways that didn't work until yeah. I found the one that did. Okay. But also with magic, what's so frustrating, knowing you might not find a way that works. 
you might just try a hundred different ways, put hours and days and weeks of passion into it and just not get there. And that happens. Like that's the pain of, of magic is, you know, I have a lot of ideas for tricks and routines and ways to make things better. And then most of them don't work out. Yeah. Most of them be poor weeks and months and like, oh, you want the scene because it'll fit this hole in your act so well. And it'll be such a great bit and you can do it on big stages and it packs flat and it plays big and it's going to be great. And then yeah. you just never find a way to make it work. And you have to let go and move on. It's the hardest thing. You have to uh, kill your babies and cry you your tea. You do. Dark tears. Yeah. Dark tears. Yeah. And it's, oh, it hurts so much. That's why like, I'm always joking when I'm working on a new exciting idea. I'm like, you know, oh, I'm scared to love again. Yeah. I'm, scared, yeah. Like, oh. I'm like, I'm so into this. I hope this works out so much. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing of that for me was like the most, the show I've worked on that had the most promise. Yeah. It was this show called Glitches in Reality that I did at a bunch of fringes and have done at a bunch of other places. And, it was like, it was so close to being a great show, but it was almost like the uncanny valley. It was like, it was nearly a great show, but I couldn't get that last 5% to work. Yeah. And it's just, I just, it's on hiatus right now. Hopefully I'll go back to it. But I spent like three solid years working on that show. And like lots of things I worked on, I now still use. It's yeah. not like it was a wasted effort. Sure. The, the beautiful vision dream of it. Oh, I just could never get it over the line. Yeah. It was, the idea of the show was it was, kind of my, my live love letter to impossible objects in that it was doing a bunch of tricks that used objects, accumulating these objects throughout the show. And then at the end, the finale was fusing all these objects into an ink bottle. So making a assembling piece of the show using, you know, things like like video games and Zelda and things like that, you know, things coming together to form an ultimate thing. That da, 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 da. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've created thing, the Triforce. Yeah, of, yeah. To get into this thing. To yeah. This, you know, this object that will now linger and possibly be on the end of the show forever. Like, that's yeah. such a, you know, creating the coolest thing. And I could just never find a way to make that final object into the bottle penetration be good, magically strong. Yeah. Like, even spoke to Steinmeier about it. Like, this went through so many iterations. I went through, I think, about nine different methods that mm -hmm. I tried and built and assembled and everything. And just none of them, were, they were all bad in different ways. Yeah. Some of them were okay, but that's not good enough. Like, okay is not. And when it's the finale of your show, and it's the magically weakest point in the show, uh, there was just no way to make that work. Yeah. And so, and I still use all most of the material I came up with from the show. You know, it was funny because I had, it was this incredibly complex intellectual exercise of, okay, what things can I put in a bottle? Yeah. That was three years of my life walking around the world going, can I put this in a bottle? Can this go in a bottle? What can I, what can I put in a bottle <laughs> yeah. that I can also do a really great magic routine with? Yeah. And that's because there were things I could do good magic routines with, but I'm like, how can I put this in a bottle? And it came up with a couple of things yeah. and vice versa. Like this can go in a bottle. How can I use this in a magic routine? And I remember for about two years, I was trying to find a good trick with a padlock and I just could not figure it. There were lots of tricks with padlocks, but none that really, yeah. You know, locked deck, eh, it's kind of cool, but it's, it's kind of just not a card trick, really. Yeah. Or like anything with a locked box or the prediction, but again, none of them were really like as good as the other things in the show because they yeah. put so much work into it. And I remember for a long time in my set list, you know, I had like, you know, balls was multiplying. I used the, the Penn and Teller trick naming methodology of just give it the single descriptive title. You know, yeah. Balls, silk, you know, Pringles. Uh, and then for a long time, that segment in the show was called Goddamn Padlock. <laughs> and it was, it was whatever padlock trick I was trying out now. Yeah. They all suck. And in the end, it was actually, that was where I came up with the improv thing. But now it was one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. Because it had a padlocked prediction chest. Yeah. fit the story. And sure. And I was like, yes. 
goddamn padlock. That's great. Yeah. Um, I actually have to go, and I feel bad because I just That's made your cool. coffee. I feel like we could go for another no, hour. We but, could. That's um, what my ex told me. Well. No, you got it. You get here. Give it here. You got to do this. You got to go. Oh wow, that's impressive. You gotta try it. Let me try it. It's a good gag. I do it all the time. <laughs> so you do it for a really yeah. long time in <laughs> the glass, and then as you take the glass yeah, and you keep, keep doing it. Gotcha. All right, I'll practice that. I'm like, it's a good gag. <laughs> it's, it's one of those awful things that no one thinks is funny. That's really that's, that's hilarious. Oh god, that I love so much about this insane industry yeah. and art form is just the. Again, it's like, again, the truth of reality. The things that what people think would be hard is not what's really hard. Everything about magic is counterintuitive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nothing that you think matters matters. And all the things you would never imagine, they are what matters. And the fact that the truth is it's worth so much putting energy into these tiny, irrelevant, seemingly irrelevant things. Yeah. Like, I am so pumped right now. The thing I'm excited to work on that I hope works out. Right? Yeah. I'm scared to love this thing in yeah. case it turns out to suck. Yeah. Is um just this goofy trick with a slap bracelet, like a snap bracelet. I heard you, I hear you talking oh, about yeah, that. I'm like, so I've got the slap bracelet. And like, and if I talked about this to a non-magician or non like non-performing arts friend, like magicians, comedians, circus, but they all get it, because you know, yeah, they sure. understand. Yeah. They're like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why are you, why are you so, like, it's a stupid slap, I'm like, you don't know, trust me. Yeah. Because if this turns out, this is going to be two solid minutes of good entertainment that can play on any size stage with a snap bracelet and that is gold as we know <laughs> like comedians that's you know you build an act a minute at a time yep and each minute takes months you yep. know to put together like those each minute a minute of good material is oh it's a little tiny nugget of gold yeah and you, you start to learn I mean you know I was a complete performing arts layman at 18 right mm -hmm. yeah I had no background in theatre or comedy or magic I, no, I still remember at the Melbourne Comedy Festival each year. Like, yeah, Comedy Festival, see some comedy, that's cool. Yeah. I still remember, like, not knowing that, like, not thinking about the fact that they, they're doing this show, like, 20 nights in a row, and wondering whether it's, like, different every time. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, remember, I remember being that naive. Yeah. And so when I meet people now who are that naive, it's, like, it's still frustrating. Like, oh, no, no that, how could you not? You don't sure. know. You have no you idea. Know. Yeah. Was, you know, no one in... Comedy knows what it's like to be a Fortune 500 business consultant. Like, yeah. consultant life, that's the world I used to be in. And it's, same, it's the same. It's got all these things you know about it that you can only know if you've lived in it and yeah. been through it and experienced the pros and the cons and the joy and the pain and everything in between. <laughs> Still learning. It's fine. It's but fine. That's, that's the other great thing about magic, that more than anything, it's taught me about learning how to learn and learning to be comfortable with being crap at something and when you start it. Because as you see that when people try and learn anything in life, whether it's personal or professional, they, they go, oh, no, this is too hard. I'm not even going to try. I just remember when the hotshot cut is another one of those sacred moves because yeah. I remember I'd learned my double turnover. Yeah. I had my little double turnover. That yeah. was, you know, still terrible. I can my break under the table before I did it. And then I remember someone doing the hotshot cut. And I remember very clearly watching that, and it, it was so obvious that my ability to potentially learn that was equivalent to my ability to, like, learn to be an Olympic high jumper. Yeah. Like, that was clearly something I would never be able to do. Yeah. Like, watching a, like, a Chinese contortionist, like, the Chinese acrobat level, like, obviously I can't do that. Yeah. 
And for four years in Magic, I didn't even bother attempting to learn a hotshot cut because they, you know, like cardistry is such a common thing now. But back then, that like difficult, slidey stuff like a hotshot cut, which at the time was you know really bleeding edge. Yeah, yeah. You know, man, what a time. You know, was that was so far. I obviously couldn't do that. Yeah. And for four years, I didn't even attempt it. It's not like it's the be all end all of techniques. But it's a cool technique to have in the repertoire. Yeah. You know, I remember I was impressed by. It. I was like, whoa, that's cool. You know, as a you know, magical beginner at the time. Yeah. And after four years, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, maybe look, let me have a crack at it. And it took me like 10 months to learn. Like I was a really slow learner. Mm -hmm. like, it took me a long time. And I remember thinking, cause it's, it's the cut, then the flick and the catch. There's three components. And I figured that the catch, catching a thing's not that hard. Flicking it looks pretty tricky. That, that cut, oh my God, that's like incomprehensibly difficult. Mm -hmm. Again, this was, sure. that was my mindset at the yeah, time. Yeah. And it was the exact opposite. The cut was the easiest bit. Flicking it was hard. The catch was just almost impossible to get. Yeah. But I can now do a hot shot cut. Yeah. And I always remember that when there's something that looks like it's, you know. <laughs> like I know now if it takes 10 months. All right. Yeah. That's a that's, fair learning That's curve. the thing that I, I don't yeah. remember why I learned it, but I just kind of had this thought. I remember having the thought in my head. I don't remember why I had the thought in my head, but it yeah. was... The somebody at some point didn't know how to do this. Yeah, you know, and that's something that I grapple with all the time. It's like weird shit. Like who figured out that you can eat this thing but not that? Yeah. Or like how did <laughs> you know how to prepare yeah. this food? Like you know, it's like a and weird. And what thing. other things haven't we yet figured out about yeah. what's in our reality around us? Yeah, you know, so many things that will be so obvious yeah. down the road. But I've, I still think, because I now do a lot of teaching magic, I, I really enjoy teaching magic to adult beginners. And yeah. I, I have a lot of projects involving that. I'm planning to do like an online version of the course I teach. And yeah, I really, I'm getting more into that because I realized I used to kind of think, oh no, I should be performing, not teaching. But I'm like, I enjoy teaching. Why not? Let's yeah. do both. Let's be someone who does and teaches, right? Yeah. Rather than an old adage that yeah, yeah. it's rare that you get both. That's so let's, let's yeah. live that. And, and I learning things like just knowing that I've never seen someone make a thousand attempts at something and not get better at it. Yeah. And that's why they go, oh, it's too hard. And they, they've tried four times. I mean, oh, do it a thousand times, count them, you know, rule of the whatever, it could be less, it could be more. Sure. But like that kind of mindset, thinking in thousands, mm -hmm. like, and you, I've never seen, I've literally never seen someone attempt any slight a thousand times and not basically get it down. Yeah. Ever. Every time, everyone who didn't learn them, they stopped before they hit a thousand. And that's like that mindset of like learning. I, I still forget that, you know, when dealing with all kinds of things. Of course, yeah. I'm trying to learn sales. I'm trying to learn marketing. I'm trying to learn, you know, all kinds. Of, I'm trying to learn how to freaking use Instagram properly. I suck at it. It's really frustrating. I find social media really frustrating. I'm bad at it. Mm -hmm. But then one of the things that keeps me going is remembering the hotshot cut and remembering how much I've learned that I never in a million years imagined I ever could have possibly learned. Yeah. And going, you know, maybe I'm, hopefully I'm wrong. Being wrong is a glorious thing when you're wrong about the limitation. Yeah. At the edges of reality. Ooh, look at that. Put a little bow on it. <laughs> Didn't even plan it. Didn't even plan Didn't it. Didn't even plan it. Found a way. That, again, lesson from improv. Yeah. Think back through what you've got and find one of those Pull things you can, the you can re the reincorporation yeah. to find a satisfying tie together. Yeah. Improv. Improv and clowning. Improv Best two things clowning. I've ever studied. Well, thank you so much, Simon. We did two and a half hours. Pleasure. You feel good? Solid, yeah. Yeah? So, I mean, it's not it's not like Jordan level, but I talk faster, so. That's true. Content-wise. That's true. Probably pretty much on par. Probably the same. Yeah. We also, like, 
The Jordan episode, we just went over the same thing over and over. Right. I mean, I've listened to it. Oh, well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Emma. (laughs) Cheers.